Hello and welcome back to Blood and Ashes, a Wheel of Time spoiler cast. This is episode 7 and I'm joined as always by my good friends Jody. Hello. And Vili. May the light illumine you. <laughs> yes, may it. Um, this week we are covering chapters 36 through to the end of 41. But before we get into all of that action, let's have a quick walk down memory lane and address a couple callbacks from our previous recording. Um, we were talking about uh, the dark friends and how they're everywhere. And we made an offhand comment that there's dark friends in the Children of the Light. And we started speaking about the man called Bors that we thought was a, uh, a white cloak um, that pops up in the, in the prologue of The Great Hunt. And it turns out he is... Jacob Carradine, who is a high-ranking inquisitor with the Children of the Light. And um, he is the first white cloak dark friend that we read about, even if we don't read about his, his real name. So we were right. spot on with that one. I also want to ask you guys if you've noticed, like I, I sometimes refer to the Maidens of the Spear as shield maidens. And I don't know if that ever happens in the books or if I'm just, you know, absorbing that term from other media or video games or something i noticed that because i call them maidens of the spear and i know you just got their own <laughs> like uh everyone does um oh, so okay. <laughs> i wonder was was there a special name given to the maidens that uh sort of act as rand's uh honor guard like he ah. you know later in the books he has like a, a group of them that stay with him all yeah. the time um I guess it remains to be seen. All we have to do is wait. <laughs> we'll get there. Two or three, four maybe years until we find out the answer to that one. <laughs> just a couple of million words. I will, yeah, just a couple more. Um, I'll make a concerted effort to actually refer to them as Maidens of the Spear or Far Dara's Mai if I have to. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, there we go. We spoke about or we sort of speculated about what the wrappings on Rand's sword could mean and we uh, find out in this episode exactly what that means. So I won't blather on about that. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to say is what we got um, notified about from our friend of the show, Rowan, who wrote to me and said that uh, we never mentioned it, but Elsie Grinwell, mm -hmm. that sort of moons over Rand, she eventually goes to the White Tower. Um, I read up about it a bit after Rowan told me, and she goes to the tower shortly after Matt and Rand pass through there. And what happens to her at the tower is she doesn't have an awful lot of talent, but she shirks all of her duties as a novice and spends all her time in the water training yard ogling the waters. <laughs> <laughs> just like she did about with Rand. <laughs> totally in character. It was fake. And eventually she's, she's chucked out. They chuck her out of the tower for neglecting her duties. But interestingly, at some point, Lanfear uses a guise of Elsie to actually deliver a message to Nynaeve and Elaine and a couple of the other um, characters. Like Matt, I think, also walks past her in the tower um, and he sees Elsie, but it's Lanfear, um, oh, which spoilers. is an interesting yeah. little wrinkle, um, which is going to be cool to see when we get there. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I had forgotten all about that. Yeah, same. Totally. Um. Did you guys have anything that you wanted to mention from last week? I'm the only one that sort of obsesses over like, you know, all these <laughs> things I've said and <laughs> correcting myself. But is there anything you guys wanted to touch on? About the sword wrappings. But that comes up in one of the chapters that I'm doing. Because I've even wrote in my notes, Moritz was right with an exclamation mark. I'm like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I knew there was something, something there. 
Yeah. Um, that's going to happen a lot. Just a tiny kernel of a thought from back in my high school days um, coming and presenting itself here. Now that you've, you've given me the opportunity to say something about this, I'm realizing that in my memories of reading this book, like stuff that I thought was happening in book four and maybe book seven, it's all happening in book one. You know, like, it's <laughs> <laughs> yes. like, whoa, this happened already? Like, I'm yeah. amazed at the amount of information packed into book one that I thought was spread out. Like, it took ages to get there, but no. It's all I'm also agog. Like, it is impressive how much of the, the story that I remember, which only makes me more excited about what's in the other books again? Like, <laughs> what about I was just going to say that. Like, how much are we, uh, have we forgotten? What's gone to the wayside? I know the answer to that, and that is mm, 99% of the story. Yes. <laughs> Out of the 4.9 million words, I probably remember 700 of them. So there's a lot to come. Yes. Sure is. So on that note, should we get to some of those words? Yep, yep. Mm. Lots of words to cover. <laughs> yes, we better get cracking. Um, last week we ended up with oh, Rand and Matt finally reaching Camelin after that reprehensible stretch of story. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I am coming down hard on that stretch for comedic effect, but you, it was a slog. Um, but the boys finally arrived in Camelin, and that takes us into chapter 36 called The Web of the Pattern. Take it away, Jody. Web of the pattern. Uh, yeah. So previously on the last podcast, we left off with them arriving, as Morris said, and having a chat there at the end to to Basil. He's just Basil now. Um, <laughs> first, name, first name basis. And he was explaining the history of Tom and whatnot. So right after that, he, he does the little explanation. He, he uh, gets them some food finally. So this is where we pick up uh, in this chapter. Rand and Matt get some food. And they all sit down together, and this is where Rand kind of gives Basil the lowdown of what's happening. Of course, he omits the trollocs and the fades, and you know, he, you know, he leaves out some of the, the gory details because mm. he doesn't know whether they can trust Basil uh, as yet. Yeah. Rightly so, everyone they've met in an inn <laughs> up until this point has tried to murder them. So yeah. don't you can't just trust anyone. No. But yeah, we see again that Matt is getting worse and worse. Uh, the dagger's affecting him more and more. He's he's really a downer. He's, he's not a fun character in these chapters. He's not all. in a good place. No. Well, we know we know why. But anyway, so uh, we get some more info as well from about Elida um, that she is formidable. Like um, Basil's explaining to them about you know like keep your voices down and it's better that you don't go and ask for help because Elida has a way of finding things out and. And when I say she's you know, she's formidable, that, that's true about all Aes Sedai, um, mm. but specifically about her. And we also learn that she can sense things or see things. So she has this foretelling ability. Uh, even mm -hmm. Basil knows about it and he brings it up. So it's common knowledge in the city, at least. Well, for, for um, important inn owners, I suppose. Who <laughs> in the city. So yeah, he gets them a room in the attic. Uh, the serving girls, of course, are grinning at Rand, giving him the old bedroom <laughs> eyes. Normally it would be Matt, but Matt's uh, such a sour puss right now. No one looking looking at him. Um, and yes. Rand again is thinking. This is the, the the theme that's running along through all these chapters. Rand is thinking, man, he wishes Perrin was here, or he had Perrin's way with girls. <laughs> and Perrin's on the other side of the world, thinking, oh, I wish he had Rand's way with girls. So yeah, they're both useless with girls. I'm very good at knocking crows out of the sky while flying with a rock in a sling. <laughs> yes. But can't talk to a girl. 
Yeah, so uh, Matt's all moody in the room when they get up to the room, and Matt's like, no, he just falls on the bed immediately, curls up into a ball. I could just see him like giving, you know, Rand the middle finger, like just <laughs> leave me alone, fuck off. Yeah, um, I'm staying down here. So Rand's like, we're in Cayman, you know, so let's go do something. So anyway, he leaves Matt, goes downstairs. He's sitting in the common room, and one of the city guard walks in the door and is like eyeballing everyone. And Rand's trying to avert his eyes. He's realizing, okay, maybe this is not a good place to be sitting around. Um, so he asks mm. one of the serving girls, like, is there a private place for me? So she says, uh, we have a library. Um, so off he goes and finds some sanctuary in the library to kind of hide away because uh, he just doesn't want to be in the same room as Matt. And he gets in that library and there's just books everywhere. He said 300, 400 books, which to Rand is, he didn't even know there were so many books in the world, uh, all leather bound, smelling of mahogany. And uh, <laughs> who else is in there? Ah, yes, it's what is pronounced as loyal. But in my mind is always loyal. I was trying to give him a little, <laughs> I don't know if that's a, <laughs> a little flair, a little French flair. is loyal. So loyal is there. So we get to meet our first, uh, our first uh, Ogier. I was like, ah, oh, sweet. It's an Ogier finally. And I, I, I remembered him. This is one of those things I was mentioning uh, that I thought yeah. loyal was introduced into the story way later. Uh, if my right. memories, obviously. But no, here he is, right in book one, right in the beginning. So, of course, when Rand first sees him, because he didn't notice him when he walks into the library, he's first looking at the books, mm. and he hears a creak behind him, turns around, and there's this giant, what he believes to be a trollic. <laughs> so he freaks out, yeah. obviously. And um, it's not a trollic, it's a legend. And yeah, Loyal is just the man. He, we get to know him through this chapter, and he is just kind, and he is intelligent, and he's thoughtful, and he's just, he's just rad. I love this guy. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and... Didn't Rand get such a fright that he drew his sword? Uh, no, not that I can recall. I don't think so. I think he just got a, just got a big fright. Uh, but that is the, the theme uh, amongst people, amongst humans in general, according to Loyal, uh, is that when he came into the city, for example, I mean, he's hiding in, that, in the inn and inside the library because when he arrived in the city, he was chased through the streets by mobs of people who thought he was a trollic trying to kill him. Um, and he's, he remained calm throughout that entire thing as well. He said he almost got upset, which, you know, goes to a lot in a long way to explaining the, the mindset and the, the personalities of the Ogier. They're very slow. They're kind of like the Ents from, uh, yeah. yeah, you know. I he was talking about, thought. yeah, the, he was uh, you about, humans are so rash and you, yeah. oh, I guess your lives are so short, so I shouldn't blame you for being so quick to excite. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but one of the things he also said that reminded me of that was, um, that he, while he was at the meeting, at the stump, they called it, where the elders were meeting. They had mm. only been meeting for a year, like only had a, a one-year-long yes. meeting. So yes. full-on ents. And they have this affinity for trees. They are the, the herders, the sheep, yeah. the, the, not sheep herders, the tree herders, basically. So they uh -huh. have a lot of, yeah, okay. But we're going to get a lot of that comparisons, as you said in the beginning. Yeah. So anyway, nobody remembers Ogis. And there's a little thing as well, like he said, um, but yeah, it's their fault because they've, you know, left humanity for a long, long time. And it's been six generations since the darkness fell on the ways. So that made me think, I'm, you know, I was thinking maybe hundreds of years, but generations, whose generations? Because Ogier live a very long time. For example, mm. Lael is 90 years old and he's considered a child. So yeah. is he talking six generations of Ogier or six generations of humans? Because there would be a massive difference. I think he meant Ogier. I don't know. I'm, I'm just assuming be, because he's the one that said it. And yeah. I think, in fact, doesn't Rand also go, hang on, 
only that many generations since the Age of Legends or the War of the Shadow or something like the, that. The War of 100 years. And then he asks um, Loyal how old he is. Yes. That's what triggers Rand's interest in Loyal's age is that mention of how many generations has passed. And he sort of does the quick math and he goes, wait, hang on. How old are you? Yeah. So Rand is good at math too. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, well. Right. <laughs> so yeah. Loose Theron. Loose Theron. <laughs> Loose Theron is good at math. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we find out as well that Loyal's he's on, he's on a journey. He's on a road trip by himself on his ace. Uh, cruising around, he's, he's trying to find all the groves, and we find out more about the, them. And uh, they wouldn't let him; the lot, the uh, the elders wouldn't let him leave the steading because he was so young. So he's snuck out. So he's uh, on the lamb. He's he's a wanted a wanted ogier, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So he's cruising around, and he's in there reading about the books and whatnot. So uh, he's he's one, of, and then we learn a bit more about the the Ogier as well, about the the steading, and after the breaking of the world, how they wandered and they roamed, and they couldn't find the steading again because all the continents had moved and shifted, so everything was mm. in a different place. And then the longing came on them, so this is like a, a physical need to be inside the steading. If they're not in a steading after a while, they die. They just that's it. Mm. So they're kind of confined to the steadings, and now they don't see humans as much anymore because they used to travel through the ways, and now the ways are tainted with the shadow. So. Mm. It's understandable we never see these guys and why humans now think of them as monsters. So we learn about the groves as well. That was their, 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 their work. Their destiny was tending these trees and these groves all over the world, which have now gone into ruin. Like in, in Ilian and Tyr, for example, they've completely destroyed them. Or in Ilian, for example, only the king is allowed to hunt. Those are his hunting grounds or whatever. Yeah. So most cities have changed. Like Everything he's read about is changed. The world is completely changed. The cities have disappeared that he thought existed. The groves are gone. And the the stonework that they've learned, like everybody goes on about Ogier-built cities. Yes. It's just an afterthought to them because there yes. were no more groves. So they kind of like just tried stonework and became... The I took the same notes. Yeah. Yeah. This just thing like, that they are just like incredibly good at. They were like, well, 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 we just did that, you know, on the side. Yeah. It's kind of a hobby, really. Nothing more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so also at this point is when uh, Loyal mistakes Rand for an Aielman. And we get a lot of this in the coming up chapters. And mm. it's happened in the past, obviously. But it comes mm. up a few more times in these chapters. Because he, he quotes something from the Aiel. Because I don't know the exact quote. But it was spitting in sight blinders eye. And bearing teeth and running into the final fight. And all these kind of things, mm. you know. And he stares at Rand expectantly. Waiting for Rand to respond. And Rand's just like, well, what do you want me to say? Mm. And uh, yeah, he makes a mistake about comparing the groves to Aventasora. And Loyal's like, no, man, you, you know better than most people. And he's like, why me? Because you're an Aielman. So I'm not from, I'm not an Aiel. Yes, you are. But anyway, so we find out that about his, Rand is clearly Aiel uh, to everyone yes. around him, except to, yes. of course to Rand. <laughs> he's the only one of Libya. <laughs> so, and also another thing is that Rand instinctively trusts him. Uh, he does. He tells him the whole, right from the beginning, he just starts blabbing. Uh, Tavirin, yes. I suppose, uh, just starts blabbing. And he tells, this is the first person he tells the whole story to, uh, including yeah. the fades and, and all the journey and the Aes Sedai and, and Lan and, and all, the, all the details are included. He tells him the actual truth. And when he's finished telling the story, Lyle's just like, ah, Tavirin. And he's like, ah. Yes. And then he explains that the previous ones were like Arthur Hawkwing and Luz Theron. These guys were Tavirin. And that Rand is in the center of it again. After listening to your story, it sounds like you are Tavirin and that the pattern will weave everybody's lives around you and we get this theme again later in other chapters mm -hmm, which i'm sure mm -hmm. one of you guys are doing that yep. rand is in the center of everything mm. 
So this is another bombshell for him as well. And that's kind of where we, we leave this chapter at the end there, that you're Nail and you're Taviran and you're going to be important. Did I no. skip over anything there that you guys noticed? No, no, you haven't skipped over anything, but I just wanted to say that I, I felt Rand's relief at being able to tell the full story. Yeah. Like when, when Rand tells Loyal the whole story, and including all the dirty bits about the Dark Friends and the Fades and the Trollocs and all that sort of stuff, I felt a weight being lifted off my shoulders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, just, it just felt really good to just, you know, maybe even accentuated by the fact that these, this last stretch of chapters were so dire, you know, like just mm. this, this, this cozy library with this giant Ogier sitting next to him who obviously also represents some form of safety and protection, yeah. um, especially knowing like, you know, how Loyal goes down the, down the story, down the track. Um, but I just felt this immense relief that Rand could tell the story. It made me feel made me feel better. <laughs> yeah, That's, yeah, because you get this thing that I guess you could finally trust someone, someone who's not going to try and murder yes. him instantaneously. But I mean, <sighs> he has been uh, with Matt the whole time, and Matt has been so negative and taken over yeah. by the dagger. Yes, and here's totally. someone that finally says, "Now look, your friends will are well; they'll be okay. Like yeah. Yeah. we'll all be fine." Just a, like a positive uh, conversation. Mm. Yeah, it would be such a welcome change for him. I mean, Matt is accusing Basil Gill of being a dark friend. Yeah. And yeah. he's going out of his way. Like, <laughs> I also noticed that when Rand tells Basil that there are dark friends after them, Basil doesn't bat an eyelid. He's just like, okay, well, that's fine. Don't worry. There's no, he's there's no the big room city, for me. You know? He is, but he, I also found that he is so um, loyal to Tom. Like that, what I took away from that is that he is so like he's so not indebted, but you know, loyal to Tom. That if Tom was trying to help these boys, he will go through to some pretty extraordinary lengths to help them as well, without mm. really knowing them at all. Yeah, purely going on. If Tom vouches for them, I will do what I can, and he does a lot for them. I mean, he puts mm. them up. The city is packed to the rafters, and he yeah. finds a space for them to stay. He gives them food. He hides them. He will come to it later, but like he's confronting white cloaks, and you know, like yeah. he's he's really stepping up to the plate, uh, which is also just another another spoonful of sugar, sugary relief on top mm. of this. But that seems stretch. that seems to be his his personality because he's doing the same for Loyal. Yeah. Yes. True. Yeah, he's true. just he's a he's a he's a good, good man. Good good guy. He's a good yeah, man, and he tries to help yeah. where he can. Well, you can see it by the patronage of his uh, inn as well. Everyone on their red supporting mm. the queen. It's, all good uh, queen's men. All good <laughs> queen's men. <laughs> exactly. He also seems to have means of gathering information. He has informants. You know, mm. like he's got people around the city that sort of feed him information, which is also heartening for a reader. Like, oh, okay, cool. This is not just some idiot that's trying to help them. This is a person of some influence and means. Yeah, like I said earlier, he knows about Elida and he knows about her ability uh, and the mm -hmm. foretelling and stuff. Is that just common mm -hmm. knowledge in the city or for him specifically? And if he's such good buddies with Tom and Tom had such influence in the court at one point, what is the history between Basil and Tom? Do we find out later in the books? Because I don't remember. I can't remember. I mean, Basil comes back into the story in yeah. a fairly significant way later when him and Lamguin and Lenny and Morghese are all traveling, you know, oh, together yeah. in each he, he, he sort of like helps them escape, I think, out of the city or he sort of, yeah, he just, he ends up helping the queen directly, which must be an absolute dream come true for him. For sure. Because <laughs> he is a queen's man to the core. 
Good man. Oh, Basil. Yeah. Um, what else? I took note of the fact that um, Rand is such a well-mannered boy. He uh, <laughs> when 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 Loyal um, greets him and he says something along the lines of "Your your name sings in my ears." Rand's first thought is to copy him and to say that back to him as well. Um, we see that later as well when Rand's uh, like meeting royalty and stuff. He he immediately takes note yeah. of what everyone else is doing and he does the same thing. Um, just what a what a good dude, good old Rand. Indeed. Oh, there was one point that I forgot to mention when he's talking to Loyal about the the pattern and Taviran and how the pattern you know will allow for small changes but not for big ones if you want to change your destiny. And Rand gives the example like yeah, for example. Um, if I wanted to not live on the farm in Emmons Field, but I wanted to live in the town, the pattern would allow that. But if I wanted to become a king, ha 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 ha. <laughs> yes. The king of the little, world, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Little do you know, the pattern is trying its damnedest to force you in exactly that direction. Yeah, little things like that. So rereads are fun. Oh, so good. Oh, man. The additional context is just so juicy. I love it. So glad we're doing this. So glad. <laughs> um. I also noticed that when uh, Loyal, he says to Rand, okay, cool, listen to your story. I want to travel with you. And Rand yeah. just says, look, mate, this is, this is not going to work. You know, it's too dangerous. I don't want to endanger someone else. But um, in hindsight, that would have been such a snap decision for an Ogier. He sat there mm. for 10 minutes or so listening to Rand's story and then went, okay, cool. I'm going to travel with you now. <laughs> yeah. He is young and impulsive. <laughs> yes, clearly, clearly clearly yeah i wonder what elder Haman would have said of his decision in that moment nothing good decision imagine. of someone that's 10 years too young to sit at the stump yes yes, yes. it's only 90 child Jesus. um anything else Will? no i think we got that one under the belt righty-o well now it's your time to shine Billy. chapter 37 is the long chase Ooh, and it's coming to the end of the long chase, I think. Uh, so, yeah, we've got uh, Lan, Moraine, and Nynaeve. Um, and uh, we gather in the chapter, it's dark, and Moraine and Lan are having a chat. And Nynaeve's trying to, yeah, she's very inquisitive around everything. And Lan just kind of stuck the reins of Mandarb in her hand and walked off. And the only reason why the horse wasn't biting her, she's still so scared of that horse. But, uh, yeah, she's uh, then having a little thought there with um, Aldib, who, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of gets her head under her hand, sort of, oh, well, since you're here, just, you might give me a rub. And having <laughs> to remind herself that, okay, cool, let me not take out my frustration on the horse of the woman yeah. that's frustrating me. You're a good horse, any which way. But they return and say, no, look, they, uh, uh, one of the boys have lost his token, the, or the boy has lost his token. But they're in they're close enough to feel him, or Moraine at least, and they are going to spend the night there. And uh yeah, it's uneasy feeling. She's now worried, and they eventually set up a little camp and try and get some sleep uh before they set out for this final move to try and find the boy. And uh during the night, sort of Nynaeve struggles to fall asleep and sort of plagued by this thought. And then she sort of Moraine was sitting with the eye closed, so kind of like it's going to be okay. He got it back. Sort of, no, he got the token back, so it's all mm -hmm. going to be okay. And she then falls asleep and like, phew, okay. Um, but during that period, you still get that all the time, her trying to impress Lan. And every time mm -hmm. there's something that's sort of dismissive that come out of his head, like, I told you to keep the horses quiet. And <laughs> she's kind of yeah. like taken by that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, 
actually quite funny. And uh, but yeah, then uh, she falls asleep and wakes up to a tight grip on her arm, and sort of goes for a knife, and it's land that sort of blocks her from grabbing the knife. It's like no, it's time to go. And again, land she's pissed off that he, yeah, and she's <laughs> she's pissed off coming at him. A <laughs> <laughs> thought is not oh, whew, it's land. It's like ah, I can't believe he was able to sneak up on me while I was sleeping. <laughs> 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 And they're like, yeah. no, look, this is time. He takes her up. They sort of come to, up to a ridge, and she notices Moraine's already there in a dark cloak. She almost didn't see her. And it's like, all right, and sort of get down on their bellies and crawl to see over the ridge. And they see, obviously, the white cloaks being encampment uh, down at the bottom. And they're like, mm-hmm. look, this is go time now. We, we're going to go down, um, and we need you to sneak in. And if you're any good as you say you are, that you should be able to handle this one. And uh, you're going to go to the picket lines of the horses and sort of just cut halfway through them, just enough to hold them for the distraction and they should be able to break three and that would set them off on the horses. And uh, she's like, okay, this is getting real now. I mean, I'm going to sneak into a camp of guards and do some real business here. And then thinking at the same time, it was just, I love Lan is also just casually dropping in. Oh yeah, by the way, I saw two wolves, but yes. it should be okay because they <laughs> they wanted me to see them. And she's like, great, <laughs> let's bring wolves into the story as well in the dark. Yeah, and he's like, no, no, look, usually they run away from men, so should be fine. And they, it's like they wanted me to see them. So mm. it's an interesting one, which sort of raised the question: was that the wolves know that they are going to be doing what they were doing was it a thought already in there that they could smell that they smelled right i think i think they suspected the way that the that the guys were acting around the camp but um Nynaeve also uses that opportunity to chirp land and go oh the wolves stay away from people do they i would never have learned that growing up around sheep farmers and blah 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 <laughs> and she just sort of has a little chuckle to herself like ha i got one over him oh yeah so well she sets off and sort of goes at full pace and only then realizing and happy that Lan couldn't see that she's starting to blush now because she was making noise. And then she slowed down and crawled down. She got closer and eventually she could smell the horses and she knew it was there. But then it got real, sort of the guards walking up and saying, uh, what was they saying there? The light illumine you, everything's safe, kind of walking off in the other distance. She's panicked but ready, pulls out a knife, Cuts the first picket fence, the first five horses, the line moves on to the other one, manages to cut her finger, sort of yelping a little bit, but carries on. And then, uh, to my uh, great happiness, she recognizes one of the shaggy smaller horses and she's like, yeah. Oh, yeah, Bella's back. And uh, she decides <laughs> Hashtag Bella's well, back. Hashtag Bella's back. And now at that moment, she also realizes, wait a minute, it's not just one of the boys. Because if Bella's there, Egwene's got to be there, which mm-hmm. means they're going to have two people on two of the horses trying to get away. Mm-hmm. That's just not going to happen. So you use a bit of intuition and she decides, all right, I'm going to grab two horses, grabs Bella by the one hand and gets the reins of another horse. And that's when Moraine decides, let's lose the thunder. And <laughs> it, it, all hell breaks loose. We've got lightning. We've got the earth shaking. And of course, the horses rear and bolt, but her holding on to the two reins in two different hands, Bella goes the one direction and the other horse goes the other direction and literally lifts off the feet 
and almost mm-hmm. I, I envision her almost dislocating a sol- shoulder socket, yeah. being lifted up, and she's like absolutely injured by this. But nevertheless, she doesn't let go. She gets up, she sort of pulls herself up onto Bella, and let's let loose. Let's go. We got we got to get out of here. The children at that time are running in all directions, and as this happens, the wolves step in as well. So it's just all hell has broken loose over there. And mm. uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much the chapter. Um, mm-hmm. There's not much else that was happening. The lightning shattered. Everything was going crazy. She got, uh, and then she realizes about the wolves, and we move on to the next chapter. So it's actually quite a short chapter. Mm-hmm. It's action-packed. Uh, action-packed. I liked, liked Nanive's uh, competence, like, it wasn't part of the plan for her to get two horses, but she yeah. sees the issue. She thinks of the future. She makes a plan. She adjusts. She adapts. It's that competence that's, uh, you know, in all the Emmonsfielders that we've talked about totally. before. Totally. They know how to handle themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was real sharp. Tavirin. Let me ask you guys this. What did Moiraine sense on the road to Camelin before they turned north to go after Perrin? Because she looks down the road and it's described almost as if she can see the length of the road. And she sort of stares down the road. I think she even stands up in her saddle. And then she mutters something about, okay, well, I just have to do something about the thing I can do something about. And then they turn north to go to Perrin. Mm. So she sensed something of I think it, random I think she was. I think she was, the thing was, she wasn't sensing something. She was sensing the lack of something. Like she was going in that Maybe. direction and going and going, trying to find a, a, a trail, a scent, a something, and eventually just went like, listen, there's nothing. Yeah, we find the boy mm. that we can find for sure. Yeah. Right. So okay. let's, let's just turn north then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that when um, Nynaeve goes up and she and lands sort of takes her to where Moraine is sitting, looking down on the encampment, and they're sort of like hatching their plan. Um, Lan mentions that he's been down there close enough to notice that the boy is under guard. You know, so Lan was like, <laughs> yeah. he's already been in their camp and back. Why, um, did just, why are you going to done it himself? <laughs> and then, well, Nanif says to him, so why don't you just go get him? And he's like, well, I could, but I don't know what kind of shape he's going to be in and I'm not going to be able to carry him out. So we yeah. all need to do this other thing. So like he'd already considered, well, I can just go in and get him. And yeah. then, uh, okay, well, I'll go in. I'll, I'll scout a bit and then I'll come back. <laughs> it's like he can come and go as he wants. Yeah. Um, and when he, uh, when he asks um, Nynaeve to go create the, the diversion, um, he says to her, if you are half as good as I think you are, the White Clicks will never see you. Mm. And I was like, yes, yes, compliment she her, is. Lan. She's Get twice closer. as good as you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, I felt good for Nynaeve when he complimented yeah. her like that. Now that was uh, there's constantly in these chapters with the three of them that sort of tension. I, mean, I don't want to use sexual tension, but sort of uh, adoration or yeah, it's that uh, that like I was when I, when you guys made fun of me for quoting the, the <laughs> mechanisms of romantic comedies, but like it's that in the beginning they they stick, you know, like they're mm. sort of at each other's throats. And all that means is that later they are going to get together. But mm. I mean, I never picked up on the stuff, uh, the, the romantic connection uh, when I read it the first time. I yeah. certainly, um, I mean, you'd be blind not to notice the sort of the interplay between them and the sort of um, 
competition almost. Um, but knowing that they eventually get married, uh, you read all this stuff in a much different light. Yeah. Now, look, uh, when you read it for the first time, you're in it for, for different reasons. You're, yes. you know, you're expecting, you're, you're reading fantasy. So you're looking for magic, you're looking for battles. Like these are the things Action. that stick out to you. Action. Mm. And then, you know, after 4.9 million words, how much of it can you really remember? Especially after like 10 years <laughs> yes. of reading it. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. You, the answer is almost nothing. That's what you remember. Well, granted, we were also just in the much different life stages. Like, yeah, we weren't yes. <laughs> in tune with these little uh, hidden things. It's uh, where's the swords? Where's the blood? Yes. I hadn't watched 30 years of romantic comedies yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So people, if, you, if you're listening to this and you have no idea what we're talking about, go watch 30 years of romantic comedies and then come back to this podcast <laughs> and everything will make also, sense. Also, reread the books, reread the books, <laughs> listen to the podcast, and then this will all click. Um, I also like that Moraine, um, when uh, Nynaeve is about to go down, she grabs her arm and she says to her, I won't risk you wisdom like she sort of mm -hmm. makes it clear she says you're part of the pattern now mm -hmm. um, and also just that little bit of relief of tension where Moraine is showing some kind of not affection but some kind of value that she adds to Nynaeve is um, refreshing because they are so at odds all the time Yeah, M more Nynaeve against Moraine but um, Moraine doesn't really give away much and the fact that she is invested in Nynaeve um, makes me feel good I don't mm, yes. think that up to this point we've even seen a point of view chapter from Moraine. I think you hardly do throughout the series. You, that's the, very, that's very the thing few. as well. Yeah, you don't get to you know you don't get to see her inner monologue, her emotions, her thought patterns. So it's we it's very, we're judging her very harshly. She's not giving yes. information. She's very rude. She's very you know standoffish. Mm. But she's doing a huge fucking job. Uh, she's on her own. I mean, she's got land, obviously. But the tower, like she left the tower as well as I recall, kind of like in a loyal situation, you know. She doesn't mm -hmm. have the full support of the White Tower to go and look for no. Dragon Reborn. So she's taking on a massive burden and she's doing all right. She pretty much saves the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, she goes and finds the boys. She saves their bacon time and time again. She equips them with the skills that they need to survive. She spends a very long time up until the point that she, again, literally saves their lives by tackling one of the Forsaken through the gateway that eventually sends her to, it's like that archway, it, it sends yes. her to the, um, doorway, the okay. elfin and the elfin. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, she time and time again um, pulls them out of the fire and um, for a long time, she is actually trying to teach Rand how to cope with the responsibility of what yeah. it is that's going to be coming his way. Um, she is the unspoken hero of the entire story. And I mean, you do get more insight into sort of her inner um, monologue and uh, motivations in New Spring, which is mm. really cool. Mm. Oh, there's her point of view. There you go. Exactly. Yes. But I mean, her, her objective is clear. This, all of them, and they, they weaved into the pattern, but her bigger objective mm. is saving the world. Like They are yes. pawns oh, in yes. this, and she has to utilize all of them, but she knows what the end game is. Mm. Totally. Very pragmatic. I mean, she, like, what was the line? She said, um, I would rather kill you myself than let the Dark One have you as well. You know, like, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, she is almost 
Machiavellian in her um, in yeah. her attempts to make sure that the dragon reaches the final battle. Um, well, look, that's the only way to save the world. It's like the only the only way it's doing is if you get to this point in time and defeat the Dark One. Otherwise, everything is fucked forever. Yes. So yes. stakes are high, I imagine. She's got motivation. Yeah. Until Catswain, of course, pops into the picture later on and takes over. Mm. But we'll get there. Yeah. Love her too. Eh. I've got a note here just saying the uh, White Cloak guards are dumb as shit. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. They're more interested in what Billy was saying. They got that saying when they're marching back towards each other. They, yes. Every time they see each other, they say, walk in the light, blah, blah, blah. It's like they're more concerned with the formality than actually guarding. And Because yes. Nanib is lying a few meters away from them. Yes. Like she's right there. Yeah, ten, ten, ten paces away from them. Like fucking White Cloaks. Zero redeeming qualities. <laughs> the stormtroopers. Uh, you recall the, that old Disney Robin Hood cartoon we used to watch as kids? Oh, and, the Fox uh, one. Yeah, the Fox one. And it's like uh, the, the, the one guard sort of blowing the trumpet. It's 2 a.m. in the morning and all's well. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Talking about Robin Hood, uh, men in tights. This is another analogy <laughs> where they have the blind, the blind guy in the tower. He's the what? He's the lookout, and he goes, yes. "I guess everything's okay." <laughs> <laughs> he was a white cloak. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> um, I also just to speak to the the land and naive dynamic again uh, when she cut four of the lines. She was about to turn back, and then she imagined what Lan's reaction would be to her cutting four of the five lines. And so she pushes <laughs> on, and she goes to the fifth one, and that's when she finds Bella. Ah, uh, yes. All right. Okay. All right. Are we, are we moving on? Let's do it. Okay. Well, that's pure chaos at the end of that chapter, and we continue with that chaos in chapter 38 called Rescue. Yeah. Um. So... Perrin and Egwene lying on the ground, tied up. Uh, Perrin can't sleep. Um, Egwene sort of nestled up to him to just get a bit of um, body heat. And he says she's sleeping the sleep of like someone that is just dead, dead tired. Mm. Um, they, he's thinking about how the White Cloaks are making them walk uh, while still like, you know, in restraints. And how he feels like if they had to fall over, the White Cloaks wouldn't stop. So it's literally like he has to look at the ground the whole time because a fall could mean the end of his life. Yeah. Um, it's just painting this picture of being like, oh man, just like total slave transportation, you know? Um, and while they're lying there, uh, child Bayar comes around, you know, still carrying parents' axe around, seems like he's appropriated it for himself. And he... I think he gives Perrin a kick, as is his want, and he's like, yes. wake up, and Perrin, I'm awake, I'm awake, Jesus, yanking them around, like he drags Perrin along the ground by the bindings and stuff, mm. you know, to make sure that they're tied up, and he's about to go to Egwene to do it, and Perrin realizes he needs to wake Egwene up before Bayard notices that she's asleep, because he's just going to kick the shit out of her as well, and he's like, saying, Egwene, wake, wake, wake up, um, and she does, and Bayard does the same thing, um, and then child Bayard sort of sits down on his haunches near Perrin and he goes, you know, we are trying to set quite a fast pace to get to Camelin, um, because there's an event happening there that we cannot miss uh, that he doesn't elaborate on, but it's obviously the 
the, the parading of Logan through the streets. Mm-hmm. I assume actually I'm saying obviously, but it's an assumption on my part. Um, and then he also says, but the, what is it? The council of the anointed is their sort of like board of directors at, <laughs> in Amador. Um, they are aware of um, the condition or the, the, the skill or the, the magic that Perrin has where he can commune with wolves and they are interested in learning more about it. So they want the, um, the Lord Captain Bornhold to take Perrin back to Amador um, so that they can interrogate him before executing him. Yeah. So they, they sort of have this conundrum where they're trying to move quickly to get to Camelon. The wolves and Elias took care of a lot of their spare horses. So they're moving slower than they would like. Um, and these two are holding them back. Now, when I was reading this, I was thinking, put them on a horse, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. instead of just, you know, tying their legs together and making them walk. But anyway, um, so he sort of suggests that if the children didn't have to worry about these two, they would get to Camelon on time. And they also can't break their own um, duty to bring parent to Amador alive but he's willing to sort of blur the lines and suggests that maybe they could if they had to escape then the white cloaks would be free of the burden of trying to you know keep them alive and reaching Camelon at the same time to the point where he actually he lobs a little stone onto the ground uh, that parent notices has a sharpened edge mm. um, ostensibly for parent to use to cut his bonds and run away now parent in true parent style does not bite he needs to consider this what is actually going on here what is by are actually trying to achieve here because if i had to escape and they killed me they'd be killing an escaping prisoner and their problem would also be solved uh, mm-hmm. and he already knows that by at least and probably all the other white cloaks already hate him he killed two white cloaks the chances are good that he's not going to get out of this little scuffle um unharmed um but um when Bayar finishes up the the conversation he sort of says um this is obviously just idle speculation, but your guards, they also speculate, mm. um, which is a pretty clear indication that that is what, that is exactly what he wants Perrin to do. Perrin gets ascending from the wolves yes. that just says help comes. And then Bayar sort of notices, okay, cool. You've had some kind of thought Perrin of the two rivers. I will know what it is. Um, and then Perrin sort of is worried like, oh shit. Um, if he senses something is up, he might just kill me anyway and then cut the bonds afterwards and say yeah. that we had cut the bonds and that, you know, we were trying to escape and they killed an escaping prisoner. Um, but it's at that moment where Perrin notices the, um, oh, he sees in Bornald's eyes, death decided. He sees mm. when he sort of has this realization, Bornald is like, oh, what's going on? And then he looks him in the eyes and he thinks, okay, Bornald has decided, oh, sorry, Child Bayar has decided that he is going to kill us. And it's at that moment where it seems like the knight moves to swallow up one of the guards. Like it's he just Batman. disappears. <laughs> Yoink, he's gone. <laughs> now there's only one guard. And before the other guard can make a sound, uh, the knight sort of envelops him and he just crumples to the ground. And Bayar obviously sort of senses this. And picks up Perrin's axe and spins around. Let me just get the words here. It's like the knight had come alive to take them all. And then Bio's axe lashes out like lightning. Mm. Um, he, he spins it so fast. It actually hums. Yeah. And he's swinging it at whatever is coming and it's Lan. And it describes Lan as just 
casually leaning aside <laughs> as the excellent comes past his face. Yes, just <laughs> fucking fantasy ninja. Yeah. Um, and he does a couple of attacks with his hand and his feet. Like Robert Jordan doesn't elaborate what it is, but I, I wish he'd like crushed his windpipe or something like that. Something something especially malicious, but the end result is basically just Bayar falling to the ground and then Lan is there and he cuts their bonds with um with his knife and he says um he said that he says to them, okay cool, you know, like it's time to get out of here, but grab their cloaks and put them on. So they grab a couple of the cloaks off Bayar and of the of the guard and um Perrin and Egwene put them on. And they're sort of just waiting there and parents like, okay, we need to get out of there. But Lan is sort of biding his time. Um, and it turns out because he's waiting for the distraction that Moraine yeah. and Nynaeve are working on. And that's when the, that's when the lightning crashes and it starts like chaos erupts in camp. But in that chaos, they are able to jump up and sort of scoot out of, out of the campsite. A couple of people sort of shout things at them, but they just ignore them and they keep going. Um, and they run out with very little resistance, really, because the camp is in total chaos. But when they get to where Moraine is, Nynaeve's not there. And um, Lan, in that moment, immediately turns around to go back to the camp. And Moraine is like, Lan, no, there's, mm. there's, there's no time for that. And then she has to, like, she names him by all those... Um, those titles of his and would you forget your oath and all that sort Lord of stuff. Lord of the and, Seven Towers and... And, 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 and. He has like 10 yeah. of them. <laughs> Forget that hyperbole, <laughs> but he has a lot. Yes. Um, but she she really has to like stop him, uh, yeah. which is, I think, the first time that you see Lan sort of acting in a way that is not uh, condoned or supported by Moraine. Like mm. he is very close to just directly disobeying her. Um for Nynaeve, uh, which is noteworthy. Well, he is a king. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> um, but then she bursts out of the trees with two horses and, like, oh, this wasn't the <laughs> yeah. plan, but, you know, it's, I guess it's it's good. Um, so they ride off and they basically just ride off into the night. No one seems to be following them. They ride for a while until they eventually get to a spot where they can, where they can, you know, just relax for a minute and make a fire and actually camp out for the night. And that's where they eventually bury the the white cloaks. Mm. Um, Perrin sort of convinced that he somehow ended up with child Bayar's cloak. Um, visibly, or not visibly, but obviously uh, affected by this hatred that this person had felt to him. Because Perrin would never have felt that before um, mm. and really, really took it to heart. So they ask about Rand and Matt, and Moraine says that they are elsewhere. That's basically all she says. And um, Egwene swears like a really hectic oath mm. um, that sort of makes Perrin blush. And then as they, I think Perrin sort of goes aside and he gets a sending from, from Dapple saying, you know, one day again. Yeah. Um, and that's basically all that he gets. And that just immediately uh, made me go, no, no, not one day, this day. Just travel with them, just like on the fringes. Just come with. <laughs> we can always use a couple of uh, wolves. Um, so Egwin asks again where Random Matter after they stopped. Um, and uh, Moraine just says that they're either in or traveling to Camelin. Um So that's already positive news for them. And she gives Egwin an ointment for the welts on her on her wrists and things. And she... She comes over to Perrin and she says, look, I mean, I heard that they took an especial disliking to you, so can you take off your shirt? Mm. And when he does, it's like 
he is basically one big bruise. He's just got yeah. bruises everywhere. But it's only, and this is the quote from the book, thick slabs of muscle that prevented him from actually breaking a bone. You know, yeah. so they don't often, I mean, they do sometimes, and especially initially when they introduce parent talk about like how physically dack he is. Mm. But um, it just it's good to be reminded like he's a, He's a beefy boy. Um, and he took, he took a lot of he took a lot of damage. He took a lot of damage from those from those white cloaks, but um he he managed to just to just um to absorb it. You don't like beefy boy? No, no I'm I'm averse to beefy boys. Note to self, continually use beefy boy. So okay, so Nynaeve has a a big reaction to seeing all these bruises and everything, obviously, and um, she couldn't understand why they would um, dislike him that much. Um, Perrin doesn't admit to killing the White Cloaks, which obviously would have painted a clearer picture for her as to why they hated him so much. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that he carries with him in silence for quite some time, if not forever. Um, and she rubs ointment on him, Nynaeve, and as she's rubbing it on him, his bruises start going away. So she is channeling totally right channeling. then and there. Mm. Totally channeling. And Perrin immediately feels like way, 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 way better. Um, but she also then in that time notices his eyes. Um, and then Moraine comes over and she's like, oh, shit, yeah. Um, <laughs> Her exact she, words. <laughs> oh, shit, yeah. Oh, shit, yeah. Uh, no, but she, I think she tries to take him by the face and he feels his skin prickling or something. So she's obviously trying to delve or do something with mm. the power to see what's what's going on. Um, and uh, he just pulls away. Um, she sort of doesn't delve into what the thing actually is, but Perrin gathers from what she says that she thinks it's actually something from the Dark One as well, yeah. which is disappointing for us knowing that it's such a great and rad thing that Perrin has forever uh, for someone that we hold as high regard as we do Moraine to think that this is also something from the dark one but it's probably just because it's not of the one power that she is skeptical of it um so uh, so then so then Perrin sort of he goes over to Lan um, after the women are done fussing over him and he goes over to land and he sits down in front of him and the two of them kind of just stare at each other for a while. Um, and then then asks him, did you have a guide or did the wolves just come to you? Or, you know, like how, how did this come about? And parents says, no, I had a guide. There was a man, um, Elias Makira and, uh, and land recognizes the name. And, um, he says that he learned a lot from Elias about the blight and about this, and he touches his sword. So mm. it's just like, land this unstoppable killing force, acknowledging that, yep, Elias taught him a lot about a lot, which is cool to know. And for Elias to teach Lan about the Blight, who grew up in the Blight, you know? So, yep. like, Elias, he's just very well equipped to deal with anything um, offensive from the Blight or from the, you know, from the shadow, shadow spawn. I mean, that's the pattern weaving these people into these kids' lives to guide them and prepare yes. them for what's coming. I mean, Elias, who taught Lan. You think Lan yes. is the ultimate, but he's not. He had a teacher at some point. It was this yes. guy that you've been, you by chance met in the forest. And he finds these kids in the middle of nowhere, yep. off the road. It's amazing. Um, 
So, so Lan also elaborates a bit about um, the Arjas because Perrin, Perrin mentions the Red Arjas specifically because I think Elias did as well because I think the Reds tried to gentle or do something similar to what they do to men that can channel with Elias and that's what sort of caused the trouble with Elias and that's why he sort of ran away. Mm. And we know from Elias that he's killed warders to do so. Yeah. To Nasty escape, business. he had to kill yeah, nasty business <laughs> killing waters yeah. offhandedly. Yeah. Um, and so Lan gives us a bit of insight about the different factions in the in the White Tower. Like he talks about how, you know, the end goal might be the same, but the means by which to reach that goal differs, you know, wildly between these factions. Um, and then Perrin just asks him straight up, Lan, do you think this wolf thing is a thing of the Dark One? And then Lan says he thinks that it's not. Lan just says that um, it's... It's, he doesn't think it's a thing of the dark one, but he says this this is the end of an age, you know. In our lifetimes, we could see the end of one age and the beginning of new of a new one, um, and things are changing. Shit's happening, you know. Things are changing across the board. You can see that you know everything is ratcheting up to eleven now, um, and the final battle is well and truly on its way. And then I've got with an exclamation mark. Then he grins. Like Lan actually has a grin on his face and he says to Perrin, um, but that's not for, for us to worry about. Hey, blacksmith, uh, we'll, you know, basically die fighting. We'll go clawing and screaming into the end. And, uh, mm. you know, that's, that's not for us to worry about. And he sort of laughs it off. And that was just such a cool uh, break in Lan's stoic nature. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of heartwarming for him to do that with Perrin, who does sort of feel completely alone and alienated now more so than ever with this wolf thing that's come over him, um, that Lan would be so friendly to him. Because Lan has been quite harsh to the boys, you know, you know continuously calling them blacksmith and sheepherder, but in a very derogatory way, yeah. uh, where here it's almost, you know, chummy. Like he's, don't worry, it's, that's not for us to worry about. Is it blacksmith? <laughs> we'll yeah. fight until the end and just sort of laughs it off. That's his respect for the boys growing. Uh, you spend some time with these kids and you see that look. And also like the yellow eyes. I think Lan mm. is now seeing like, oh shit, you know, there's more to this blacksmith than just mm. some yes. wool-headed sheep herder. If you look at the way he took a beating, I mean, no yeah. normal man yes. could take a beating like that and not mm. have broken bones. I mean, that, that yeah. in itself give a, a level of respect and like, all right, no, for that's, sure. Uh, you're not this little sheep herder blacksmith anymore. You've you've mm. felt the real world around you, which is also interesting. The um, when the Nanif took out her ointments, they made a statement around that sometimes her ointments work really quickly and fast, mm. and sometimes mm. they take longer, but they always worked. So yes. this the sense that she's been doing this healing maybe for a long time, sort of in in and amongst her wisdom herbs and all of that. Mm. So yeah, it works faster when she's channeling <laughs> as well as rubbing ointments on you <laughs> yes. at the same time. I mean, I, I was shocked when they, when I read this this time, when I read her putting the ointment on him and like it visibly changing the bruising and the, making the bruising go away while she does. I was like, oh, oh, cool. Okay, great. What an, what an awesome ointment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Always, always do this. Do this now. <laughs> For sure. Throw away all your other ointments. This is the one. <laughs> <laughs> there was something that you mentioned as well like i don't know if this is the way you're explaining it or the way i i understood it when um child buyer is is telling um parent that he should you know he could escape and then he wouldn't be such a burden and he's da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. like he is he's totally wants to kill him but he's looking for a yes. way to kill him it's not 
Okay, all right. Just don't want to like just to, for the for the listeners to clear that up. Like from my perspective, yes. at least, he totally wants him to escape so he can kill him. That's all because he knows yes. if he kills mm. him without provocation, he's going to get into shit. So yes. please escape, please. I'm begging you. Yes, so I can kill yeah. you. And then the thought I remember distinctly of that that passes through through Perrin's mind when his eyes flash like mm. that is, "We come, brother." And yes. well, I had to swallow there because it gets a lump in my throat. That is yes. fucking awesome. Like he's already yeah. brother and. <laughs> we come brother like yeah the wolves are invested on. eh like yeah, i mean they've come so far already i suppose they don't come across humans who they can chat to like this on a regular basis so no and once they do they are one of the pack yeah and brothers so yeah that was yeah. very very cool i love that and also this brings me to another question um i always remember the only combat skills that i remember from this book are swords Sword fighting, the forms, leaf on the wind, all of those different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I is is Lan is Lan a ninja? Because I mean, you, you said it Pretty as well. Much. Like they don't, they don't. Jordan doesn't explain more about the hand to hand combat. He just like hands and feet. But is he fucking mm-hmm. throwing high head kicks? You know, and you know, I bet ninja punches and shit. Like, is he? A, do they train the warders? Is it's like ninjas? <laughs> it's like, the swords certainly sound. Um, Katana ish. Yes. Even if the even if the hilt is slightly different, they um they definitely are slightly curved blades with a sharp yes. edge and a non sharp edge. So I, I think the swords and the sword fighting obviously would be very similar to samurai style mm. fighting. Um also on the is it the cover of the Eye of the World? Um with the picture of them sort of riding Lan and Moraine up front. Um mm. Lan is also wearing a helmet that looks very samurai. Yes, but I mean, even his his features, the people from Saldea, from the north at least, they have these the the slanted eyes like Melkir, please. I'm saying Melkir, yes, of course, but also <laughs> the people from the borderlands, the northern the northern countries yeah, have with this their top kind knots. of Asian vibe to them. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Which also brings me to talking about different races. Um, the Aiel men, Rand is particularly red headed with light eyes and light skin. This doesn't seem fitting mm. for people who live in the fucking desert. Um, no, maybe but they they're should not from be... the desert. Uh, okay, well, you, they've been they've been there long enough. They should have adapted. But anyway, we'll get to that. So, yeah, they just look like um, red-headed Irish people with a tan <laughs> in the desert. That's <laughs> terrible. That's the worst people to put in a desert. <laughs> they're constantly getting sunburned. In um, in Camelon, when Rand is in front of Elida, she also pulls up his sleeve and like takes note of his like fair skin where mm. the sun hadn't touched him. Well, maybe that's why the Aiel are constantly wrapped up from head to toe, with even their faces covered and everything. It's it's, it's not for dramatic <laughs> effect. It's because they'll get the shit burned out of them if they don't. <laughs> um, yeah, rescue. Anything else out of that one? No, just about just how awesome that is. Uh, I love the planning. I love that uh, Nanive played her oh, role. So good. That the lightning strikes, the horses break. Yeah. Uh, we come, brother. Just everything about that is is rad. Oh, and that and that Egwene and Perrin are back with allies. Mm. <sighs> and yes. out of the hands of those bastards, yeah. it's uh, just the worst. Fearing thing. that they would not have survived that walk at all. Like, no, I mean they were about yes. to die. Tyre mm. Byer was about to kill him. That was the end, right then and there. Thank God they got to yeah. him on that night, <laughs> not tomorrow night. <laughs> have been too late. Uh, to Baron. Um, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so we're ready to move on. Sure. Okay, Joseph. Why don't you take us through chapter thirty-nine, weaving of the web? 
Yes, more weaving of webs. Um, so we we pick up with the boys now. We're back with Rand. I say the boys. By now you should know the boys. When I say the boys, it's it's Rand and Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's Rex Manning Day. Oh, sorry. It's actually <laughs> it's actually False Dragon Day. So Rand is super excited. <laughs> say no more, more, no more. <laughs> it's False Dragon Day. So uh, everyone is stoked. The city's in a in a fury of just awesomeness everyone wants to go see the false dragon rand is in his room looking out the window he's there up in the attic so he's looking out over the city he's trying to get Ra- uh, matt all all stoked like hey dude it's uh, it's uh it's uh false dragon day let's go let's go check out Logan. <laughs> i almost said rex manning again <laughs> <laughs> totally taking that joke too far then uh but matt is just now he's in the pits he's really just the worst um and he he even says something like just go by yourself go with your your trollic friend like and he's like oh you dumbass he's not a trollic he's an ogier you know like matt's just being a dick now so yeah curled up in a ball grabbing his uh dagger uh in on the bed and he's just like he doesn't want to talk he doesn't want to go so rand's like fuck you i'm going by myself mate. so off he goes when he gets downstairs he, he bumps into basil uh basil says to him hey look man News on the street is that there is somebody in the city looking for you, and he's looking for three boys, and he's calling you by your names. Like he knows who you are. Is some some beggar? Nobody knows who he is. Of course, it's uh, Fane, as we all well. I suspect at this point, it's old, mm-hmm. our, our good old chum, Payton, the cunt Fane. And it <laughs> makes me wonder if he is already um, merged with Mordeth at this point. Or does that happen later? Because uh, no, I, I think I think at this stage he's still just the Dark One's hound. Remember, there's a whole phase where he's the hound of the Dark One, mm, and he's whole... sort of being compelled by the shadow the whole time. It's just the the uh, the end, the natural end of his Dark Friend phase. Yeah, um, I think you find out more about it later, but I don't think he's quite there yet. No, okay, because they do go back to to Shadow Logoth in Book Four. I want to say a couple times, five? I think. And I think that's perhaps because he follows them back there and that's where it happens. Okay. But that's just yeah. what I talked about earlier. Like a lot of shit is happening now in book one that I thought happened in later books. Maybe this yes. is actually one of those things that happened in later books. <laughs> uh, I'm not wrong about it. All right. So, yeah, and he also mentions, Basil also mentions that uh, people are starting to see strange shapes creeping around outside the city. Mm-hmm. And man, uh, man, Rand is like, uh, what kind of strange shapes? Uh, and Basil's like, Trollocs, how do I know? He's like, actually, you were spot on. It is Trollocs, uh, which we find out later. But yeah, so they're amassing outside the city walls because now Matt is there, uh, Rand is there, and the, the dagger itself is actually causing, uh, it's, it's like a beacon mm-hmm. to the darkness. They don't know what that is, but mm-hmm. anyway. I don't know if that's now or then or later, but anyway. So also, here's my here's my first note. Uh, Moritz was right. Yes, we talk about the wrappings <laughs> on the on the swords, yes. white wrappings with a red cord. Queen, bad. That's all you need to know. <laughs> red wrappings with a white cord. Queen, good. Okay. And the streets are packed with people, and even Outlanders are now wrapping their swords and wearing armbands. And most people are wearing the white, which is anti-queen. Because they blame yeah. the queen and her allegiance with uh, Aes Sedai and having a lighter and everything for all the bad shit that's happening in the world. Yeah. So, you know, typical shit that's happening in today's political atmosphere. It's happening. It was happening mm-hmm. then or will happen in the future, depending on where you are on the wheel right now. Turns out fantasy people are also idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's the, the general theme. Everyone's an idiot. So, yeah. yeah, the streets are packed. They are 
you know, people are thronging. They're just trying to get to go and see Logan, see the false dragon. Also, this doesn't happen every day, so everyone's there. And even people are pushing the white cloaks aside. Normally, the white cloaks, when they walk through the city, have this bubble around them where no one interferes. One guy actually sh- intentionally shoulders one of the guy white cloaks out of the way and yes. kicks him out of the way. But like nobody even notices. It's just so many people. So great. Yeah, finally, somebody. Uh, and the, they can't do anything about it. So, yeah, like I said earlier, this, most people are wearing white. Uh, there's very mm. few of the people with the red bands. And even when they are, when you do see them, they're clumped together in groups of 10, 20, you know, for protection. Because they also, mm. they notice this shit is not looking good. So mm. Rand eventually shoulders his way through people. He's cruising around through the city for ages. Um, finds a street where the parade is going to come down, where they're going to come down the street with the, the trumpets and the carriage and parade Logan. Um, and he finds a spot to stand. He's naturally taller than everybody. Yeah. So he's got a good spot. He hears the people behind him cursing him like, God damn, tall people. <laughs> Can't see anything. So he's like, sweet. Down in front. Yeah, you're down in front. <laughs> so Rand Stoke, he's like, oh, sweet. I'll be, I'll be, I'm right in the front. I'm head, head's taller than everybody else. I'm going to see Logan's face even, you know. And um, that's when he sees a ripple in the crowd of people like, like jumping out of the way of something moving through the crowd and people start speculating, oh, it's Logan already is here, you know. And it turns out it's this, uh, this Fane guy. This very, very stinky man. The stinky man. So his rags are stiff, like his cowl, they even like the way he's described, like it's so dirty, like his, his cloth doesn't even fold anymore. So yeah. he's, he's stinky. He's obviously not pleasant to look upon or smell upon <laughs> uh and if people are just getting the fuck out of the way as fast as they can and uh he, as he comes like within line in line with where where uh, rand is standing he stops swivels his head and points directly at rand as if he can smell him or see him or sense him mm. in some way in- instinctively and screams and then the word that robert jordan uses is scuttle he starts scuttling, not running. He's a feral animal. He's a fucking feral yeah. animal. He's on all fours, scuttling across the ground. Like you can't see his mm-hmm. face. He's in this dirty cowl and everything. So, you know, Rand just <laughs> legs it. Like, <laughs> um, also, Rand, Rand doesn't recognize him. Yeah, we know it's Pat and Fane, but yeah. he just refers to him as the beggar. Rand doesn't clock that it's that it's Pat and Fane. Exactly. That's how unrecognizable he is. Just, just the worst. And he's, uh, <laughs> he's, yeah. Uh, I mean dark friends are everywhere trying to kill Rand. So he has, you know, all the, the right, yeah. you know, justification to, to try and get the fuck out of there. So he runs. Yes. So he legs it. But of course the, there's throngs of people. So he has to, isn't that another collective term? A throng? Yes. <laughs> How many is that? Yes. A fist is a hundred. A throng. We have no idea. So anyway, <laughs> they, he starts running through these people, pushing them out the way uh, to get the, away from this crazy beggar guy who's obviously a dark friend and, nine 99% chance he wants to murder Rand so Rand's mm-hmm. legging it out of there and he breaks through the crowd and stumbles and then just runs through the streets and he spends some time after that just cruising but he still wants to go and see Logan like he's come all this way and this is what he you know he, this is what he's here for well to find his friends yeah. and Moraine and everybody but he really wants to see Logan um so he's running around the city trying to find another place to go and see the procession uh, can't find any spots in, like that awesome spot he had in the beginning right up in the front there's none of those left <laughs> So he, he notices, he looks up and he sees, uh, okay, some of the flags, like there's the, the, the inner city. So that might be a good place up there. So he runs up this hill and there's a wall, which he scales like a champion, which is apparently a flat stone wall. with just a few cracks and he's wearing boots. So he scampers up there uh, to go and sit up on top of this wall so that he can, you know, get a good view of everything. 
And just as he gets to the top and sits down and settles, he hears the trumpets and the procession starts coming through and it's massive. And there's, you know, there's swordsmen and pikemen and archers all in livery and, you know, and this massive carriage comes through. I think it's 16 horses carrying it, uh, carrying it, uh, pulling it. And as it comes through there, there's this massive cage on the, on the back of this carriage with Loghain in it. And Aes Sedai surrounding it, sitting in the corners, uh, just staring at him intently, obviously shielding him from the one power. We know this uh, as, as the readers. Um, but he's the way that Loghain is standing in this cage, holding onto one of the bars with his head high, he has the bearing of a king. He's tall. He's got these long flowing locks. Like he doesn't look like a man defeated at all. Like he looks like, no. you know, this is, this is a formidable person as well. Not more formidable people. So, uh, and just before um, Loghain goes into the, the castle gates, there's a moment where he looks back over the crowds and he throws his head back and laughs like maniacally. And this is the scene yes. that I was talking about a couple of episodes ago. This okay. is what I remember. Because Loghain in later on says that he saw a beacon of light on top of the wall. And that's when he sees Rand. This is the moment he sees him. And he starts laughing because, Haha, you think I'm the problem? Wait until you find that guy. <laughs> yeah. That's why he thinks it's so funny that everybody's making such a big deal about him. But when he, because he, he doesn't see Rand, he just sees light, like pure, mm. unadulterated power. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what we come back later to. But this is the, the, the part that, like, if you're reading this for the first time, you'll, you'll see. And he laughed, he threw his head back and laughed. It's, you know, whatever, nothing. But yeah. now knowing some things. So anyway, the Aes Sedai are shielding him on this on the back of this carriage. And while they're intently staring at him, all the warders around the carriage are instinctively, you know, uh, keeping their eyes on the crowd, trying to protect yeah. them all, being being warders in their cloaks. It's all very unsettling. So yeah, just that the this this Rand thinks that Logan looks like a king, you know. He looks he he looks like he's yeah. a man of power. That's that's what we get. So uh, while his after Logan has passed through the through the gates into the the courtyard of the, the palace, uh, Rand is trying to get a better look. He's shifting around on the wall, and he, he thinks to himself out loud. He thinks, "I wonder why all of those Aes Sedai were just sitting staring at him." And he hears a girl's voice from the tree branches above him saying, "Oh, they were they were shielding him, silly!" And he's like, "What the?" He's surprised, looks up, uh, loses his balance. And falls out of the tree, knocking himself unconscious. And that's where we leave this, this chapter. We all know whose voice that is, but I'll leave it for the oh, next yes. person <laughs> to take it up there. But yeah, just this, this idea that Loghain, uh, this false dragon, although it took half the world's armies to bring him down, he is not a defeated man. He is a not powerful dude. Not at all. Not at all. So is there something that uh, you guys want to add to that? Oh, Yes. Uh, it was uh, quite interesting the, how in this, and we'll call it a short journey from the start when Land put the sword on and to where he is at now. But, Land uh, or Rand? Rand. Yes. Yeah. And he, uh, when he leaves the inn, he takes the back alley and the, the one bouncer, security guard, oh. uh, Lamguin, sort of mm -hmm. says like, yeah, just... Be careful out there because a guy like you with a sword like that can be handy in a place when we're getting in the tight spot. Like he's, mm. he's done nothing to show him that he can do anything. It's just yeah. the way that he's been carrying the sword now. I suppose how he carries himself 
sort of that's yes. the big security guards are saying now you could be handy around here yeah in a fight we'll yeah. need you um gareth Bryan hints at the same thing later mm. yeah when he says that sword belongs with him mm. that, don't, don't ruin my chapter <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, you're setting yourself up for another big <laughs> statement in your in your summary. <laughs> setting the table. Um, I already mentioned that uh, you see Lamguin here for the first time, and yes. uh, he also features in the story later when mm -hmm. uh, they're traveling with Morgase and everyone's they've got their own little adventuring party. Um, so this time around, I've taken a lot more note of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just like him because mm. he is uh, so unflappable and into cats. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's always, he's always a stroking cat. a cat. Yeah. Well, cats are valuable a commodity at that stage in the city. Apparently, it's, yeah, yeah. It's like the Bitcoin of Randland. Rand also scuttled up the wall, but he did scrape his hand and cut his hand open as he was and his trying. Knees. And his knees, yeah, well, and all of that. He was in a rush, but he does. He, I mean, he says that. The wall was expertly made, and there is—you can virtually—you can't even see the joins between mm. the stones. And like Jody's saying, his booted feet find irregularities in the face mm. of the stone. So he's not like scraping his boot in between stones. It's like irregularities on the the stones themselves, and his hands are sort of seeking out these um, these handholds and footholds and stuff. And uh, Elaine says something about it. I won't, <laughs> I won't step on your chapter again. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> My only hey. note is Rand is an awesome climber. Yes, but I think he mentions it like the cliffs behind Emmons Field or something, the sand cliffs or something. Yeah. And even Perrin climbed those. <laughs> even useless Perrin, who's good with girls. Whose <laughs> yeah. pesky muscles get in the way all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, who are the who are the guys with the white wrappings that yes. are just eyeballing the Queen's blessing? Yeah, they're standing on a barrel or something. Yeah, uh, dark friends. Maybe it's just because I mean, I don't think anything comes of this, but um, maybe it's just because they know that that is a spot for let's call them Reds mm. to congregate. Yeah. The same guys get back or they are still there watching the inn, except with black eyes a little bit later <laughs> when, yeah. when Rand comes back. And Langwin Lang makes an offhanded comment about them trying to steal a cat. <laughs> <laughs> trying. Operative word. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely not white cloaks, but uh, the white cloaks are in town as well. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yes, they are. And getting shunted around by throngs of people, which is very satisfying. What I uh, so Rand was running through the crowds, and there was a lot of people that had white banners and white around their swords, and he was sort of like trying to keep hiding his sword that was covered in red, almost cursing the fact that red cloth was cheaper than white cloth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he would yeah, have like he's chosen a side, but accidentally, accidentally yes. chose the right side. Yes. But then he wonders, like, would would um, yeah. Basil Gill have helped him if he if he had chosen white? Yeah, so it all worked out good in the end, especially since mm -hmm. uh, we find out into whom, whose garden he has recently tumbled. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And on that note, why don't you take us through chapter 40, Will? The Web Titans. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Rand took a, a deep fall. He, uh, he, 
<laughs> Literal and figurative. Yeah. <laughs> you, was, you could say he fell for Elaine. <laughs> yeah, he, well, he, he, yeah, heads over heels. Anyway, yeah. kind of, kind of <laughs> stop it. It's and I almost did a spit take on the laptop there. <laughs> <laughs> he, he gets excellent. Gathers, he's, he's confused whether he's in a dream and somehow Bazalman's in there, and then he sort of like has to shake him. So he's, he's really concussed. He he blicks him down. One, <laughs> and then he's sort of like, oh wait, there was there was a girl. Where's the girl? And then he steadies himself. He gets on, sort of looks around and looking around and then uh all of a sudden there's this i mean young maybe two years younger than him very attractive blonde girl blue eyes and her dress is immaculate like the embroidery the 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 material except that she was in climbing trees in it and he's kind of yeah what what lady would be climbing trees in such silk dress and there's like branches and twigs still stuck in it and uh, yeah, she's like, are you okay? Like, and immediately sort of rummages in her pockets and she's carrying around ointments and rags and all little things to to heal. But they're very calm. Like, oh, good luck. What are you doing here? Like, well-spoken, calm about it. And he's kind of very confused at the stage, sort of what's happening. And uh, then he notices there's a boy with her. And he's like, yeah, well, we'll never hear the end of this, Elaine. If mother finds out, the boy said suddenly, she w- she'll told us to stay in our rooms and you just had to get a look at Logan, didn't you? Now look at what it has got us. And he's like, okay, here's the names and uh, picks up that's Cowan and Elaine. And uh, it took around a minute really to realize what's happening and he gets to his feet and he's like, no, nah, I'm fine. Like Everything's okay. And she's like, no, no, you hurt. Let me have a look. And he's protesting, now you'll get blood on your hands. Like, you you would dress way too finely for this. Now at this stage, Rand has only seen three women dressed that finely. Uh, Moraine, the lady that tried to kill them in the stable, and now Elaine. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, so he's wary as well, but it doesn't appear to be dark friendish. We we should say <laughs> it's, it's you never know until that flaming sword of dagger is in your face. <laughs> hissing daggers and all of that. But uh she takes care. I mean she she pulls out a piece of silk uh ribbon to tie a bandage on his head and he's like, No, you can't use that. I mean, any girl in Emmonsfield will cherry something like that and keep it mm. for special feast day occasions. So obviously Money's not an object to her. And uh, he's he sort of now, she's going on about mother. And he's like, but, well, now, you know, who's your mother? You know? The, oh, it's, I think he uh, said about the Queen's Captain's Guard and the trouble there. And it's like, no, it's like, mother is uh, the Queen. Like, Queen will gaze. And Rand basically shits himself at this news. He's like, right <laughs> I, uh, I was told to stay out of sight. And not get into trouble, and I'd literally fallen into the Queen's Palace Gardens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now here we are, and uh, yeah, that's when uh, another person joins and uh, joins the the lot, and this is now um, their half brother. There, everyone's uh-huh. half brother. <laughs> everyone's half brother. Half brother. Uh, so yeah, that is now what is his name? Uh, Galad. 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 Galadred. Galad. Yeah, Galadrid. Galad, and his uh, Rand describes him as being too handsome to be a man almost. 
It's uh, yes. the not, I think it's. I think I get the feeling like he's too pretty to be a man. Not that he's too handsome. Like he's. Mm. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> he uh, he sort of, uh, but Elaine is quite stern with him. Sort of almost laying down the law that look, she's the queen next in line. She's not going to take mm. orders from anyone, let alone a half brother. And uh, they do get that sense that there's maybe a bit of jealousy or like envy in the the rankings of the royal family. But yeah, he uh, he sort of clears the way, turns around, and obviously as soon as he cleared the corn, he went bolting to go and get the Queen's Guard and uh, ran at the stage like, oh man, um, this, is, this isn't good. This is uh, really not good. <laughs> Trouble is upon us. And um, I, as and they say, like, look, I, I need to get out of here. Like, I'll, I'll start scaling the wall. And she's like, look, no, there's a, there's a door or a gate that's overgrown. No one knows about it. Like, you can get out there. But before you could even actually get to it, they hear boots coming and the Queen's Guard is on the way. And with Talanbor, mm-hmm. that uh, leads the guards to the garden. And um, But Elaine knows to handle her mouth. Uh, she gets him sort of like they jump in front of Rand. And they're like, no, this is our guest. You're going to treat him with the same courtesy and respect as any guest of the Queen. And uh, everything he says, she rebuts and sort of, okay, cool. Are you going to tell me now? And yeah, that's a... Uh, he kind of gets to the point where he doesn't know what to say to Elaine. Uh, but the news is already at that time spread through the palace all the way to the queen. And news comes all the way back that no, bring all of them to her. It's like, you've been summoned. So now you're all in shit. Yeah, no, yeah. shit has happened. Gawain is like, oh, now we're in it. I told you. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, they they get on the move and they moving into the palace. And Rand is still obviously so head bashed that he he doesn't even realize what he's walking through. Yeah, so uh, they eventually go through, and uh, they're not going to the formal throne room. They're going to one of the other rooms, and uh, Gowen sort of takes a little bite. Oh well, that she's never executed or ordered someone's execution in that room. But you know, yeah. <laughs> we should be all right. We should be all right. And uh, they enter the room, and as they enter the room, like Elaine takes this big bow, and Rand sort of hand on the sword, goes down onto one knee, a knuckle touching the ground, like the full formal bow. And the landlord is uh, a little bit peeved at this, that this peasant-looking boy knows the formalities. And I'm, I'm certain Tam should have told him or taught him quite a bit in his years. Like they've had their books that they read on the farm. Not about that. I don't think Tam has ever said anything to Rand about bowing to a queen. I think he was just watching Gavin. Just copying. Yeah, Gavin. he was copying. Oh, yeah. just copying. But yeah, he, yeah. he goes down, stands up straight, and uh, before Elaine can sort of pop in and start speaking, like Morgas just shuts it down. Like, I, I told you kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> the room. like, this man is dangerous. But uh, yeah, they didn't listen and they went and they wanted to see uh, Logan. And yeah, so uh, she goes, oh no, look, he's a royal subject and he's from the two rivers and he just, we, we spoke to him, he fell over the wall. And, you know, it's like, so they start sort of, you know, who are you? And Rand then doesn't lie, tells his name and 
this is uh, where we meet Elida. She's kind of sitting down knitting. And Rand can't not figure out what the color of her dress is. Because it's kind of shimmering, but not even looking up, knitting, knitting. And all of a sudden, she gets up and she sort of moves forward and sort of questions like, where are you from? The, the part where she lifts open his arm to see the color of the mm. skin. It's like, your hair colored, like, this isn't right. Like, everything sounds wrong. And uh, she doesn't buy the two river no, story. No, she doesn't buy the two river story. But Rand sort of, he's adamant and he's not going to fault on that. Like, yeah, my mom was an outlander, but I'm from the two rivers, I'm a sheep herder. Mm. And then uh, he's like a sheep herder carrying a sword and she sort of touches the sword hilt and she says, oh, a heron mark blade as well. And this is when the room just goes to all hell. <laughs> oh, just sort of hair and mark blade in the house, jumps up, and uh, the Captain General of Gareth Bain, he jumps in front of the Queen, sort of to shield her. And uh, he's like, no, my sword, got it from my dad, got given it to me by my dad. It was my dad's. I questioned and grill him a bit. And uh, what's nice about Mogai, she doesn't really listen just to Elida. And often references back to Gareth, like, okay, what do you think? And this is the, mm. uh, this part where it's like, no, the sword belongs to the boy. The way that he carries it, the way it is standing, that is his sword. Like, yeah, yeah. no doubt about that. And uh, she's quite uh, torn at this stage. She's like, okay, what do we actually do with this boy? She, Morgais asks Lyra to, like, what do you have a foretelling about this? And uh, she, and Elida replied, and I swear under the light that I can I can say no clearer. From this day, Andor marches towards Spain Division. The shadow is yet to darken. It's darkened to its blackest, and I cannot see if the light will come after. Where there's a world where the world has wept one tear, it will weep thousands. This is what I foretell. And then it's very quietly, she sort of only says it, I think, loud enough just for Rand to hear. Uh, this too, I foretell. Mm. Pain and division comes to the whole world, and this man stands at the heart of it. And mm. then, kind of more loudly, I obey the queen, she whispered, and, and speaks it clearly. Mm. So it's, uh, that's when she sort of had her foretelling. And then Elide, um Morgais then asks Gareth, you know, what's your take on it? And it's like, yeah, I hear Elida's foretelling. However, every, any farmer can say that because look at what the land mm. looked like. It's, it's kind of everything has gone to shit over here. So uh, Mogai sort of uh, then says, all right, I'm not going to be part of this. I swore to uphold the justice and however high or low. And she asks Rand, you know, did you climb the garden wall uh, simply to look at the false dragon? And he says, yes, my queen. And do you mean harm to my throne, the, to the throne of Andor and my daughter and my son? And he's like, I mean no harm to anyone, my queen, not to you or yours at least. Um, uh, yours at least of all. I think there's one that I missed there. Uh, she asked him about the sword, um, if he got the sword from the two rivers. And it, uh, we also said yes. I think that was just the three that he, she asked him just the three questions. And then uh, she said, no, take him, let him out, show him all courtesy, uh, He's okay. Like, there's no problem here. 
And uh, that day was uh, a bit of sigh of relief and very much to the disappointment of uh, Elida because she wanted to get a clause into him. I think she's already felt or sent something there. Uh, but mm. Elaine and Gowan also joins the procession then to lead him out, sort of to make sure that he's being treated fairly and, uh, mm. you know, with courtesy. And when they get to the palace gates, um, uh, she mentions to Rand, if I had mentioned to Mother that I think you were handsome, you would have sure certainly be locked up in a cell tonight. <laughs> Farewell, Rand. Hey, yo. <laughs> hey, yo. <laughs> He's getting a lot of that. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> it's picking them up with a handsome young man. Uh, yeah, but uh, she dismissed the, the lot of them, but again, held Elida back. And that's the last that we see of them in this chapter. Um, what I did forget was that line that uh, uh, when Elaine said to him when he fell into the gardens that, oh, you climbed the wall so well, but you don't fall that well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, th- there's a lot that happens in this chapter. I mean, this is a pretty beefy one. Uh, we have a lot to discuss, I think. There's uh, a lot of fairly important characters being introduced in the single chapter. Mm-hmm. Elaine, Gowan. Gallad, Morgase, Elida, even uh, Talonvor. Mm. Like they all mm. feature in some way. Um, I mean, especially, obviously, Elaine uh, and Elida, those two probably more so than any of the others, but Morgase in her way. And then um, Gawain and Gallad have their own little arcs that are also very compelling. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah, Elaine also, that we learned there that um, Elaine is going to go to the tower as well. Yeah, in one week's time. In one week's time, she's going to the tower for her teaching. Now, mm. um, we, do, we don't know that she's got any potential at this stage. I don't mention anything of that. No. But uh, but yeah. she turns out that she does have a little bit, but not enough for her to become mm. an Isodai, I think. Is that... Elaine? No, Elaine's got plenty. Uh, Morgase didn't have oh, much. Oh, with Morgase, mm. all right. She can yeah. barely channel, but she can a bit. So she never became full-blown Isodai. But she went to the tower for training and she had a little bit of a affinity for it. Elaine, I think, figures out traveling or something, like gateways. Mm. Like She figures out a big thing. And I think, she, is she not also the one that um, figures out how to make heartstone? Shit, bro. I don't know. <laughs> I don't that, remember any of this whatsoever. That, that, could, that could all be bullshit. But um, yeah, she she kills it. Also, one of the things that stood out here is that um, when Rand's standing in that room after he stands up after bowing, that he mm. and Elida comes down and walks in front of him, that he just stares her in the eyes. Like he doesn't flinch. Mm. He holds himself like like the dragon reborn right from the beginning. Yes. Like he's yeah. sure of himself and he, he's like he feels queasy in his stomach when he does it, but he does it. And the fact yeah. that he says, my mother was an outlander. Like, <laughs> no, bro, your mother was the former queen. She was sitting there a few <laughs> yes, years ago on that diet. On this throne. <laughs> <laughs> Before Morgais, your mother yeah, was the queen. It's your father who's the outlander. But yeah, anyway, yes. that was a funny thing as well. Now, knowing what we know, obviously. Yeah. But uh, also that Elida's like, she's like, what Vili was saying, she's just sitting in the background, knitting, throwing comments in every now and then, interrupting the queen. You know, like her position of power is is high, and she's yes. Yeah. O- originally, she's speaking without even looking up from her knitting. Mm. Yeah, like just disdain for the queen or whatever. And the fact mm. that uh, I think it was Elaine that mentions that she will give she gives Elida orders, but never Gareth. Like Gareth, she yes. makes suggestions, and Gareth just agrees with him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but she'll tell Elida, "Sit down, woman. 
when Rand is escorted out of the city or out of the palace rather at that stage, he uh, asks Gowan then, you know, like, what is this that everyone says I don't look like a Two River or a Western? And mm. he's like, mm. what do you mean? Like, kind of like, duh. And uh, up until this point, uh, there's just you liken somewhat to an ill man. It's like, look at your hair, look at your eyes, look how tall you are. Just put a scarf around your face and put some other clothes on and you're an ill man. Like, mm. there's, there's no doubt about it. And mm-hmm. Rand is like, okay, what? I'm an ill man. So Everybody is saying this to him. <laughs> this is the second time in these six, in these chapters. Yeah. Yes. So it was now Loyal early on and uh, Tom in the beginning. You're a stolen mm-hmm. Ail man, so maybe now mm-hmm. it's sinking in that oh, all right, maybe I should go buy a scarf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a shufa. <laughs> I always imagined Gowan to be uh, a redhead for some reason, but I guess he's just also blonde, like Elaine, like his sister. Because Rand sees from his coloring and his face that they are obviously siblings. Mm. But doesn't Elaine have red hair? No. Reddish blonde. She's strawberry blonde. It's actually blonde. blonde. Strawberry blonde, blonde. Yes. Let's get to the technicalities then. <laughs> yes. I was, I was, I'm going to, I can't have done in my book here, but uh, I, I distinctly remember reading that she has red hair and thinking, oh, I always thought she was blonde. Am I just imagining that? No, I'm it's, imagining. it's reddish. It's red, red gold, I think, is maybe what's, it was misleading. I mean, Avienda right. obviously has red hair. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see her. So we've got two out of the three wives so far. We're just waiting yes. for number three. Yes. Yeah. And that takes a little while, I think. All right. It's not going to happen in this book. Mm, no, no. Definitely not. Well, you never know. I love, I love how Rand, before he realizes who he's talking to, and Elaine is busy, like, sort of um, bandaging him up, um, he asks Gowan, does she always expect everyone to do what she says they yeah. should do? And Gowan is sort of surprised, like, uh, yes, yes, she is the daughter heir of the of the throne. Of course. Yeah. Um, I also remember having a distinct disliking of Gallad mm. um, from the beginning, but now not at all. No. Yeah, I'm on the same he's, boat. He's, um, he's just doing what he thinks is right. I mean... He is right. There's an armed stranger talking to the princess and the prince in the royal garden where he's trespassing. That is not a normal state of affairs. Yes, it is right to call the guards to at least make sure that everything is okay. And he becomes a Um, white cloak, right? Yes. I mean, he has a, by the end of the book, by Tom and Gaidan, I think he's the Lord Captain Commander. Something, yes. High ranking. Because he he challenges Eamon Volder, the guy that causes the downfall of Pedro Nile. Mm. Um, he challenges Volder to a one-on-one sword fight. And Volder is a blade master. Mm. And what? he ends up killing him and becomes the Lord Captain on the spot. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> wow. So much cool <laughs> stuff coming. <laughs> yes. Huge, huge shit. Well, it, the White Lakes does suit his personality, I suppose. It does. It does. Yeah, he is. Uh, I think early on, it hasn't happened yet, but I think early on, they talk about the fact that he is probably going to become a white cloak or he's already expressed aspirations to become a white cloak or something along those lines. And when you read it, you're like, mm, yep, okay, that makes sense. 
Yeah. Does. At one point, he actually breaks his own um, sort of code, and I think he helps Rand escape. Yes. At some point, or he, there's something that he does where he goes against his own nature. Because that's when he finds out that their mother was the same person. That I mean, he doesn't know that. I think so. That happens way at the end. Like yeah, it's way spend, late. Yeah, they spend most of the books not knowing that they are related. Yes. Yeah. I love what else. More gays there when uh, Elaine and Gowan was uh, sort of piping up for Rand. Says like, oh, well, uh, you obviously don't read your books very well. The two rivers have not seen a tax collector in six generations, nor have they seen Queen's Guards in seven. <laughs> yes, <laughs> stubborn. <laughs> they don't even know they're part of us. Yeah, Gowan is also surprised when Rand says he's from the Two Rivers, and Gowan's like, "Oh, like way west, mm. yeah, all the way up against the mountains of mist." Um. Also, I obviously didn't know this the first time I read it, and I didn't even recognize his name when I got to the end of the story. And you read about Talonvor again, and you know the the torch he carries for uh, for Morgase. Um, but you meet him in book one mm. when they're traveling together toward the end of the story. It's like Morgase is like weighing up whether she should be romantically involved with him or not. And he is quite clearly uh, smitten with her, um, and probably is already at this point. Yeah. Hmm. Indeed. Jeez. Like now, now that you mention it, I remember that, but yes, wow. he, he travels with Lamguin, who we also read about in this chapter, yeah. And Basil Gill and Morgays and Linny as they escape uh, Camelin. And I think they eventually join Perrin and Fayil. And they do. Uh, Morgays, Morgays uh, acts as a, a maid yes. to Fayil. Indeed. <gasps> without Fayil knowing. Do you know who else pops up later that I read about sometime during this week in another related post somewhere? Who? Aludra. Is that her name? The- oh, yeah, the Illuminator. The Illuminator, remember her? There's going to be yeah. a whole thing about that too. Just rad, <laughs> like Amazing. so many characters that I completely even you know forgotten existed. They played an important role. I mean, she comes up with fucking gunpowder. So they they drop names and foretelling, um, foreshadowing, foretelling. <laughs> I've got <laughs> a lighter on the brain, but foreshadowing hints and stuff all over these things and then leave it dormant for literally books and books and books. And then this character comes back. I mean, Bale Domon also comes back. Him, him you remember because he, he is such a memorable character in that flight down the Aranel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this is, it's so cool on the second and third go through to read all these names that you recognize from like the final books. No, well, that's speaking of a Ludra, a Ludra, I think her name is. Mm-hmm. I think it's a Ludra. Bale Domon yeah. uh, hook up. They travel together. And there's a circus at some point. Um, <laughs> you, you, you're grabbing snatches from like all over the story and putting them all together in a single, single sentence. But Eludra, the Illuminator, doesn't hook up with Bail Darwin. It's a Sean Chan woman that hooks up with Bail Darwin. A Sean Chan woman who right. leaves the Sean Chan ways away. I, I can't remember her name. But Eludra travels with Matt and they build the dragons yeah. and they build the cannons mm, yeah. uh, using gunpowder, using her stuff. Jeez, I've forgotten about all of that. <laughs> We're going to be saying so that much. a lot. You have to pay five bucks every time you say that. Oh, damn. Wait until you get to that exciting part about the mystery of the two few sitters or whatever the fuck side story that went nowhere. But anyway, 
I don't even remember that. What? About the sitters. Don't you remember that? I think that was what, about in the, in the... Book 10 was about that, you know, like a whole book about... In the nothing. tower? Yes. Like the oh, I love that. They weren't, they weren't... I love the tower politics. No, bro. <laughs> the whole... The, the listeners will know what I'm talking about. Send us a message. But yeah, this, <laughs> Matt and, your Matt and Rand uh, sleeping under bushes part, that entire storyline about some mystery to do with the sitters, that there weren't enough of them mm-hmm. of one color or another. It is, uh, as I recall, unresolved and means even if it is resolved, Totally useless. It means nothing in the, like, <laughs> the end of the story. Why did you spend the whole book on that? You know, anyway. We will cover that in depth. Oh, yes. I look forward to it. <laughs> I've got my worst part of the story behind me already. <laughs> Yours is in book one. Lucky you. I've got nine <laughs> books to go until I reach mine. Well, I mean, it's a well-documented fact that, you know, lots of Wheel of Time readers refer to those book, I think it's eight, nine, and ten, as the slog. Yeah. Um, I found 10 especially challenging. Yes. Um, book eight, I, I, <laughs> book eight is when I caught up with the series and, um, you know, like all the books had been written up until that point. And then when I finished book seven, it's like, okay, there's no more. And mm. book eight, I remember being released when it was, oh, very few listeners would know what this means, but our matric rage. So like when you finish oh. school, your final year of high school, schoolies. Um, everyone goes away for a weekend. Yeah, schoolies in Australia, it's probably the different names everywhere, but you go away for a weekend and you, the kids just get smashed up drunk. Spring break. <laughs> party, party all the time. It was the day we got to Plettenberg Bay, which is the town in which we had our rage. And we, we got there. Most of the guys got out of the car and walked straight into the bottle store. I walked into a bookshop and I, <laughs> yeah. and I bought, I bought book eight there. And then I saw it in the bookshop because I'd been going into bookshops, waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. And I was like, Oh, there's a bookshop next to this liquor store. I'm going to go in and find it. I bought book eight, went into the liquor store, bought all my booze, got in the car, went back to the townhouse we were staying in, cracked a beer, took the book and went to my room and started reading <laughs> until like George or one of our friends came in. He's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> Put your fucking fantasy book away and come party. And then I did. Yes. Um, but like, I, I read book oh, eight in the, in the midst of that. Yes. <laughs> so that, out of character for me. That The first the first Wheel of Time book that I bought brand new was book nine. And I was living okay. with you. That's when we lived together. Here we go. Studying, and I went shopping and I went into a bookstore waiting for it. And there yes. it was like a similar story. Students yeah. living together, and that's where I bought book nine. And there it is on my yeah. book still to this day. The same one? Same nice. one. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So um, I guess we've exhausted everything from that chapter yeah. and everything up until the end of book 10. Should we just jump to book 11? <laughs> <laughs> we have a responsibility. We do. Well. We will do this for our people. Yes. With great power comes book 10. <laughs> Okay, let's do the last chapter for the stretch. Oh, shit. Old fr- <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> we're done. Love a sidetrack. Okay. Old friends and new threats, chapter 41. Oh, man. Just reading, reading that title makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Yes. Oh. Um, we join Rand as he gets back to the Queen's Blessing, panting like he'd run the whole way from, uh, from the palace. Not even caring if like other people wearing the white noticed a person in red running and decided it's a good opportunity to just pounce on him. Um, but um, Lang- Lamguin is at the door, and that's when he talks about having dealt with the two guys with the white uh, cockades and like the 
uh, sword coverings being across the road. And it's like Philly mentioned, like the one's got a black eye and they're looking all sullen and it's like, I'm going to just dealt with him. Um, in my notes, they look roughed up. Um, and he tells Rand that Basil's in the, in the library. Um, and when Rand gets into the library, Basil Gill's there playing stones with Loyal, uh, losing because it seems like Loyal usually wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so Rand tells him everything that happened. And Basil Gill's like, oh, yeah, sure. Um, we had Gareth Bryan just in the common room a little while ago. You know, we can all tell tall tales. And Rand's like, no, dude, this <laughs> really happened. Yes. Um, and um, it's while he's busy talking to them and Basil sort of like eventually starts coming around to he's like oh shit okay this really happened um he at first doesn't believe him uh and then uh, and when he does then start you know buying into the story that rand's telling he's like okay look you guys have probably at most two days to get out of the city yeah. <laughs> it's gone from like oh yeah whatever to like okay you need to do gtfo yeah um because apparently that's how long it'll take them to search every inn and maybe it'll take that long if they start at the fake inn name that Rand gave when he said where he was staying. Mm. Um, because he knows that if Elida wants to find him, she will she will make a plan to to have that. And done. she wants to find him. Yes. Um Basil offers to pay for Mother Grub, the sort of, you know, wisdom analogue across the street to come sort out Matt if he can't get Matt up and moving to get out of the city in time. Uh, and Loyal also immediately says, um, I want to come with you. And Rand says, look, you know, we spoke about this. And Loyal just says, look, man, the, the pattern is shifting and you stand at the heart of it. And that immediately triggers that, you know, that synchronicity with the the statement that Elida made in her foretelling about, you know, the world will weep and this man stands at the heart of it. Yeah. So Rand just says, okay, cool. You can come with me. Obviously, it would be a pleasant experience for Rand to have someone more upbeat and, um uh, you know, capable of traveling with him than what Matt has been. And then a serving girl knocks on the door and she calls her Master Gill and she says, look, there's white cloaks in the common room and they're looking for two dark friends uh, from the two rivers. And Mr. Gill's like, okay, cool. Um, I'll go deal with this. And he goes out into the common room. I can't imagine, I didn't really know where Rand was standing once he's standing at a door because Rand sort of, the chapter is from Rand's point of view and he sort of sees what's happening, but he must be just sort of lurking in the back, yeah. maybe looking through a cracked door or something like that. Um, but the white cloaks are basically, you know, just throwing their weights, weight around and trying to sort of intimidate the people. And Basil Gill just says, get the fuck out of my inn. This, you, you carry no, no um, authority here. As he's talking to them, Basil says that everyone in the inn, like, don't come here with your talk of dark friends. Everyone in this inn is a good queen's man. And then the white cloak makes a comment about the fact that while we all know who your queen sort of fraternizes with her links to the White Tower, well documented. And as he starts making these comments about the queen, um, everyone in the in the common room, do they stand up? Like, I yes. think like everyone sort of like stands up and looks at him and he doesn't even notice, but the guys around him, the other white cloaks are starting to look around nervously like, um, uh-oh, what are we going to do here? Um, they draw their swords, don't they? They all stand up. I think so. Swords. They draw their swords and daggers. Like the guys that don't yes. have swords are drawing daggers and stuff. They are ready to just, you know, deal what, with these guys. What did you say about our queen? What? Yes. Lamwin's <laughs> already warmed up from early in the day. He's, he's, he's the Lamwin other... blocks the door. <laughs> he's, <laughs> like, he's blocking the gonna, door. We're going to fuck them up now, boys. Basil sends them off and then he has to say to Lamwin, no, let them out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> barring the door, ready to break some white cloak face. Um, so 
uh, he then tells Rand, you know, after the White Cloaks are, are dealt with, and they're sort of like, oh, you, you haven't seen The Last of Us, you know, we'll be back. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, whatever. And as they leave, everyone in the end is sort of like clapping each other on the shoulder, going, <laughs> good, we got one over those idiots. Yeah. Um, and then Battle Guild just says to Rand, look, I mean, for you guys to leave the city, you're going to have to be smuggled out. You know, we are going to have to make a plan to get you out of here without anyone noticing. And then. Rand is surprised that White Cloaks are looking for him because there's no reason for White Cloaks to be after him. It's obviously the White Cloaks are after Perrin and Egwene. They're not after Rand and Matt because the White Cloaks don't know about Rand and Matt. They're just talking about two dark friends from the two rivers. That's Perrin and Egwene that have escaped. I ask the same question. Was it for Perrin and Egwene that had escaped or was Mm -hmm. it for Matt and Rand that caused in Balon the nah. upheaval and they knew they were going to um, Camelin. No, I think that's too much of a stretch. I think they are looking specifically for Perrin and Egwene. The guys in, in Balon, um, the young Bornald didn't know that they were from the two rivers and, you know, like, yeah, I, I, don't, I think that's a stretch. I don't know if they, if you knew that they were going to Camelin either. I don't know if the White Cloaks knew that in, in Balon. I'm pretty sure it's Perrin and Egwene because um, just the way it's worded as well, like Rand even ponders it. He's like, why would White Cloaks mm. be after Matt and I? Mm. But anyway, that's all um, academic because a maid arrives and says that there is a lady in the kitchen asking for Rand and Matt by name. And Basil Gill is like, oh my God, did Elaine Trackend come down to my inn to find this interloper? Like, do I have royalty standing in my in my kitchen? But then um, Rand just says, no, I never mentioned Matt to Elaine. So no one from the palace would know. And as he's saying that, he sort of realizes, hang on. And he starts smiling and he runs into the kitchen. And Basil Gill's trying to say, wait, be careful. But he doesn't care. And he runs in and there is Lan and Moraine and Egwene and Perrin. And it is the joyous reunion that everyone <sighs> has been waiting for for so long. It's so it's so heartening. Eh? Like it's, mm-hmm. it feels so good. And they're all like trying to hug him at the same time. And he's awkwardly trying to shake Perrin's hand and hug the girls at the same time. And, and they, they're sort of getting – and Moraine looks unflappable. Like she yeah. – I think Nani even says that when they got, they were sort of zigzagging around the city, but when she got close to the Queen's Blessing, they rode straight into the back, walked into the kitchen without asking if they were there and just said, tell the innkeeper that we're looking for Matt Cawthon and and Randolph Thor. Mm. Um, And so she's standing in the kitchen just looking unsurprised. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And Perrin is sort of keeping his eyes downcast, Rand notices. So obviously not wanting anyone to see the yellow in his eyes. And... Basil Gill is just so impressed to have an Aes Sedai in his in his kitchen. He's just like, okay, I'm sure you'd rather go stay with Elida in the palace and everything. You know, I'm sorry about the state of my inn. And she's like, no, no, no. I think I think I'll stay here, and you must let me pay for you. And he's like, okay, well, you know, if you're sure you don't want to be staying in the palace, I'll give you my best room as a gift. You know, like he is just falling over himself to try and help them, which is also great. Um, and Nynaeve asks where Matt is. And Rand says, okay, cool, he'll take them up to to the room. Matt hasn't exactly been himself. Um, so he takes them up the back way up to the room. Um, and Egwene asks about the red and white cloth, and Rand sort of plays it down in a weird, awkward way. I didn't know why that was. Like he sort of brushes it aside like it's nothing. 
this might be a stretch, but I don't know if maybe him wearing the red, being a loyal Queen's man, might look at might make it look like he has some kind of bond with the royal family and Elaine because what he also does when he falls off the wall and Elaine picks him up and sort of you know dusts him off and you know starts patching him up before he notices that she's beautiful he sort of notices all that stuff and then he notices her beauty which a I don't buy because that's not how guys work and b <laughs> um he he immediately compares it to Egwene yeah and feels and feels guilty about it. Yeah. So when Egwene asks him about what's with your red cloth, he's sort of, oh, no, don't worry. It's, it's, it's nothing. So I don't know. This is idle speculation. Could it be guilt? Don't know. They also ask about where Tom is on the way to the room. And Rand has to tell them that he's dead. Uh, or at least that he thinks he's dead. Um, and they get to the room and... You know, that sort of soured the mood a little bit. But if that soured the mood, then this seeing Matt absolutely destroys it because um, they get in there and Nynaeve, look, they walk into the room and Matt's like, how do you know they are who they say they are? Yeah. And Rand's like, dude, Full of paranoia. it's fucking Nynaeve, Egwene and, um, and Perrin. Like, these are our people. Um, he's not even happy to see them. Um and then he looks at Nynaeve when she's trying to sort of check him out and he says, ah, oh, pretty Nynaeve, you can't help but thinking of yourself as a pretty girl these days, can you? Uh, everyone's changing. And then he looks at Egwene and he's like, oh, you've changed a lot as well, haven't you? Would you like to talk about the ways in which you've changed? It sort of just puts a sour, you know, note on this, on this happy reunion. And then Moraine arrives in the doorway and she gives an audible hiss as if she's burnt her hand on a hot kettle or something, I think she says. So you can imagine her walking in the door and going, uh, Yeah. Uh, shit. Moraine and, um, hissed, man. <laughs> she, she, yeah. I mean, That's... unflappable Moraine yes. audibly hisses and then rushes over, grabs Nynaeve and drags her away physically yeah. and says, everybody stay the hell away from me. Um, and Moraine and Matt sort of lock eyes and Matt just like, glares at her like they are staring at each other in a very very intense way um and she comes closer to him and he's snarling at her like he's he's pulling his mouth in like a rictus snarl and she she puts a hand on his knee and as she does he um obviously whips out the dagger and he's about to like, like he tries to stab her or cut her in the face like he's, I think he's trying to slit her throat like, yeah he's just coming at her and my note, Land basically teleports from the door <laughs> to right next to Matt because it's, the description is something like he basically was there and then he's here ignoring the space in between. Yes. And he catches Matt's wrist in one hand and doesn't, like, now Matt can't move. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like a statue. Yeah. Um, Land's got and, you, you're not moving, that's it. And the dagger is, like, inches away from Moraine's face and she also doesn't even blink. Yeah. You know, like, she knew lan would take care of the situation and lan did um and actually for the duration of the ensuing conversation um lan is just standing there with one hand holding matt matt's entire like strength is focused on just his arm because the rest of his body is still curled up and he's still just trying to get the dagger to moraine's face this like single-minded determination to get it there and it's not moving anywhere because lan's holding him but he he cannot think or talk or do anything else except for trying to stab or cut or slit her throat um, and Moraine keeps talking like she doesn't ask Lan to like do something about it. She's just <laughs> having this now conversation with Lan holding imminent death inches away from her face. It's 
pretty intense, the, the faith that she has in Lan's capabilities and the fact that he is able to execute on those expectations. Um, okay, so Lan basically teleports, yes. Uh, then Moraine says, uh, Dark Friends and Fades, as we hear, Dark Friends and Fades would have been drawn to this thing like iron filings to a magnet, right? So mm. it's starting to sort of explain a bit why Rand and Matt were living under constant attack along yes. the Camelin Road, you know, like people wouldn't, the Dark Friends wouldn't know why they are even compelled to seek out the source of this thing, but they would be. Um, uh, and the same thing goes for... Can I interject there? This is the, yes. this comes back to the well-dressed lady that tried to stab them in the barn. When mm-hmm. we talked about this, when she when she saw Matt and she saw yes. the dagger, yes. she made like you know like she noticed it, and we 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 had some conjecture about that. And that's in this yes. chapter, Moraine says that the the dark friends, especially those that are given their souls away completely, will be more in tune with this kind of darkness. So right. obviously, this mm. woman was much was deep into dark world land, uh, dark friend land or whatever. Yes. So that's why she had this connection to the dagger. That's why she could sense it the way she did. Okay. I I knew her reaction to it was something slightly more, if just a smidgen more, than just someone reacting to a dagger being held mm-hmm. to their throat. Um okay, cool. Yeah, I didn't even consider that. That's that fits nicely. Um <laughs> Rand mentions the um that people have been seeing shapes outside of the city and that it could be Trollocs, and then Land just pipes up and goes, Oh, it's Trollocs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it definitely is. Trollocs. And he and he knows like the numbers, you know, like yeah. he knows how many he says it's a dozen fists, you know, like there's yes. a dozen fists of Trollocs out there. And did we say a fist is a hundred Trollocs? Yes. Or is it the small enough? Oh fuck. That's okay, one thousand two hundred Trollocs sitting outside Jesus. the walls. They are talking about how um, the Trollocs would soon enough, they are going to breach the walls and they're going to come in here because they are. it looks like they're acting out of desperation. Um, and then Perrin makes an offhanded comment about the fact that, you know, um, they'd, it'd be better if they, if they were all dead. And then Moraine sort of shuts that down and says, you know, if you were dead, it would be easier for the Dark One to get access to you because that is his domain. Mm. And that's when Rand notices Perrin's eyes for the first time. Um, I don't think he says anything about it, but he certainly notes it. And then Moiraine sort of reminds them of Matt. You know, uh, yes, I know this is all well and good. We're all talking about this, but also this guy. Um, and that he's almost dead. And that, you know, one of two things would happen. Either he would die or he would be consumed by the power of Mashadar and he would actually go around spreading it. Like mm. people would only have to spend a little bit of time with him. So less Mashadar, more more death, you know, that people would only have to spend a little bit of time with him and you would be infected by this, like, I don't know what else to call it, but like a supreme negativity and paranoia. And like, she says, eventually they regress into a state that would, they would only want to kill. That's yeah. all you, that's all you become. It's just something that wants to kill all the time. Um, and so she basically, she sends them off and says, look, you know, give me some space and some time and let me see what I can do for him. And I think that's where the chapter ends. Yeah, right before the chapter ends, she whips out her angrel. Yes. Okay, yes. give me some time. Like, I, I need help with this. Yes, yeah. This is going to take some work. And later we know it takes even more work. So they got to take him to the tower, to the White Tower. Yes. Yeah. She does something temporary to sort of see him through. And then when he gets to the tower, they can actually hear him. Because he is he's on the verge of being completely, completely consumed. Mm. Yeah. 
I don't know if anyone ever says it. They, said, they don't say it in this chapter, but I I like to think that it's part of his sort of Two Rivers stubbornness that has <laughs> held off, that has held this evil at bay for as yeah. long as it has. Probably. His um, manetherin blood. Yeah, well, when I read this the first time, it was uh, like a bad part for me. Like, because I almost thought like at that point, like Matt has got, well, he does have such a big part to play. But just to mm. see him sort of regressing to this bad sort of shadow was and for so long and like how it becomes so so consuming was kind of like oh Mm. damn it man we've already lost tom um it's uh not looking good for matt no yeah luckily moraine (laughs) saves the day yeah saves their bacon again she sure does you guys any have any additional thoughts or things from that little stretch that you want to highlight? Yeah, just the one, yeah. It was, uh, they were after Perrin because the text in the book is actually, I'm looking for a dark friend. I'm looking for dark friends, a boy from the two rivers. So it's not mm, boys. It's okay. just a boy. So it's definitely Perrin then. So yeah, that's right. Makes Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So dark friends too, but it's a boy from the two rivers and sort of he got cut off. I also often like when trying to determine these things, like you look at the the pros and the the actual um, contents of the surrounding text. Mm. You know, the fact that the author felt the need to highlight the fact that the protagonist couldn't understand why they would be looking for him is a clue as mm. to the Obviously, fact that yeah. it's not necessarily him that they are looking for. They are sort of they do sort of like leave you a. a breadcrumb trail to follow man this is i'm having the bread now the second read around forget breadcrumbs <laughs> like i had the breadcrumbs <laughs> on the first try. it's so great and i'm really like i mean to the to the point of no, like taking note of like when painting the the images of these characters in my mind like really trying to fight against my original um, concepts that I've sort of dragged along through the decades since reading the stories the first time, really trying to read the words. So like, that's why I brought up earlier, I thought Gowan had red hair, but he's just the same coloring. I don't know if maybe in another chapter, they make another mention, you know, cause he pops up here and there throughout the series. Um, but I certainly from the beginning thought he had red hair, um, but he's, he's blonde. Yeah. He's a blonde dude. Also Looks like Elaine the gardens in the palace are all green. Mm-hmm. Mm, That's something yes. that Elida is keeping the rats away. She is keeping the grass green and the flowers blooming. And Elaine mentions that and thinks that it's, yeah. it's, it's not it's right. Wrong. Yeah. That's a bit obscene. Yeah. Rather have the farms green. Like, why doesn't she do that rather? Elida, I think also said at one point she offered nominate one farm and I can do this for them as well. And she thought, yeah, that, all the other farms around the one farm would be dying. It would just cause unrest. Yes. Jealousy. Yeah, totally. Rand, Rand notices how green it is in juxtaposition to all the dry, mm. you know, dead brush and trees and grass it's and stuff. Green and outside flowering of and there's flowers everywhere and it's just green grass and green trees. Yeah. Lush. A, a Elaine's character as well. She's similar to Nynaeve in the fact that she's always trying to help. That's why her dress is full of pockets with tinctures and bandages yes. and yes. Gavin even mentions that she's always finding strays and helping them. Yes. I'm calling you a stray. Like, no offense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
but like she's always ready to help fallen birds and all kinds of things and yeah. she like it that that their gardens must be green while other people are suffering like so she's a she's royalty but she does actually care about other people yes Yes, she has compassion, which is um, something that you would think would lead her to like a yellow Arger, but um, I think Elaine chooses green, Battle Arger. Mm. I think, no, I'm saying mm, like I think yes, but I can't. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> Neither can I. I. <laughs> no idea. I, I think I think she, uh, Egwene, I can't remember. I can't remember what she chooses. Doesn't um, she choose but blue? Elaine, I'm sure she goes blue, and then she also, well, obviously is without an Aja later on, mm-hmm. of all yep. Ajas and none. But yeah, I think yes. she goes blue first. Okay. Makes sense. Do love the blues. Because of Moraine. Mostly because of Moraine. <laughs> <laughs> At any point in time now before this, have we, has Taverin been mentioned in the book yet? Or is this the first, the first time here where Loyal says, hmm, Taverin? Sort of like, yeah, I need to, to hook up with you. You're going to show me some stuff. Loyal says it the first time. Moraine hasn't said anything about it, and um, she and no one else would have had grounds to do so. Mm. There's nothing about men when they meet men that nobody mentions to fear? Is it just no. us thinking it in our heads? Oh, men just sees colors all around them, and uh, that they... Men talks about... People like um, she. She hints at the fact that they have all these like bright lights around them. I think like these specks of light that sort of float around him and his two friends. Um, but she also mentions that Isadai always have a lot of um, you know images around them, and Warders also have a lot of images around them. I don't think the term Taverin is used at that point, but she certainly uh, is describing something that would be relevant to, specifically to Taverin, which I think is all those like bright lights around them gosh i'm excited to see something that i want to mention ah you go joe talking about the show right yeah i was about to talk about the show this is that disturbing news uh that i mentioned at the beginning we can cut this if you want but there was some casting news about a new character another ibarra a second ibarra a female character i can't remember what they're going to call her like Mm. something with an l l ibarra and the speculation is that she is Perrin's wife, that they're going to make a major change that in the beginning in the two rivers, Perrin is married already, has a wife. When the Trollocs attack, he's in the forge because they work the forge together. And when the Trollocs attack, he's in the forge and him and her fight the Trollocs off. And while he's busy swinging his, uh, his axe in a rage, he turns around to swing and kill a Trolloc and he kills her. He kills his own wife. And that's what sets him on a mission to leave the two rivers because it just reminds him of her. And that because they what? they were saying that the speculation was that there's not enough motivation for Perrin to leave the two rivers. That the fact that you mean Trollocs trying to murder you does not give you enough reason to leave. No, I mean like if Trollocs are trying I to hate leave this, everyone. I hate every bit of it. It's fake news. <laughs> fake news. Yeah. Also, I mean, I don't think we've ever spoken about this, and it's something I thought about a lot as well. Is Perrin spends a lot of time with. Uh, Master Lewin and Elspeth, um, you know, at the forge. And but there's an there's an Abara farm. Yes, mm. his, his his family lives close by. He just spends his time because he's an apprentice to the blacksmith. It could be the casting. Let's hope it's Ibarra his mom. Woman. Could literally be his mom. No, because she's young. I've seen the photo. They're the same age. It's not his mother. The other option, oh, Jesus. The other option that I've heard from the same source is that it is his sister. That Perrin is adopted. He's also from outside of the two rivers. And that he, his adopted sister is this, is this character. 
So that's what, what makes him give him more motivation to leave is that he's also an outsider. Maybe they are there looking for him and that's why he leaves the two rivers. I don't know. This okay. speculation, wild speculation. Uh, wild speculation. But this woman has been caught and she has a name and it is Ibarra and it's not a character from the books that we know. Interesting. Okay. So do you guys have your favorite moments ready? Ooh, Ooh. yes. Oh, really big. Jo- no, no, I, st- I started last time. I think it's Joe to start. I don't have one. Let me think. I, did, I forgot about favorite moments completely. You go and I'll... No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll okay, I'll go. Uh, definitely the throne, or not the throne room, the, the side throne room, and the mm-hmm. moment when Elida proclaims that he's got the Heron Mark blade and everyone's reaction. Oh, yes. React. Just yes. sort of, oh, shit, jump. And uh, Gareth uh, immediately is in front of the queen, like uh, mm. reminiscent of a scene when the sniper tries to take out the president and all the bodyguards jump in front. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I love that. And then coupled with that the sword fits with him and that he stands and he wears his sword. Um, and that statement carry so much weight on the second read through because you know in what an absolute like high regard Gareth Bryan is yes like he is one of the great generals you know it's him Davram Bashir and one other guy Mm. what other guys it's it's Gareth it's just (laughs) (laughs) what's your favorite moment Moritz I still haven't thought of mine (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm torn. I'm, every week I'm like, oh, there's two or three that I want to mention. Like the one that I'd written down. So the one that I will go with is um, the scene where Lan rescues Perrin. Um, the fact that child Bayar, like the, the, the wording that's used, like he whips the axe around like lightning mm. and he spins it so fast that it hums. Like it's, you were previously shown that child buyer is also extremely adept with an ax, mm. you know, like this is his, it looks like it's his weapon of choice. He's also taken that ax and gotten used to it. And it is a very, very well made ax. So he's like an experienced guy with a good weapon, like going full tilt against whatever this invading force is and the casualness with which land just sort of leans to the side and then deals with him and moves on to the next thing is like, is just so great. And that whole scene, um, of Lan, um, you know, like leading up to it, acknowledging how how good Nineveh or Nineveh is, and um, and the his part that he plays in that in that whole uh, setting of that scene and executing of that scene, the fact that he's been into the camp and out again and could go in whenever he wanted to, um, it's just more Lan badassery. Yeah, he is just the baddest of asses. that came out wrong beautifully put (laughs) very right yeah so i'm kind of torn but i'm gonna have to go with uh since you've taken the two coolest ones uh all the interactions between rand and and loyal um the fact and also when he comes back that second time and he's telling that story when he's when he's telling when he sees loyal in the in the Mm in the library again in the library and he's telling that story and also like he was told specifically stay out of sight stay low mm-hmm. hiding is not done 
oh, I've just come back from the Queen's throne room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, the false dragon looked at me and laughed. Uh, then I fell in, <laughs> hung out with the prince and the princess a little bit, <laughs> met all the royal court and Elida. Yes. And, uh, and now I'm back telling the story. And Basil's just like, whatever, bro. Yeah. Whatever you say, bro. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. True to Verena. Yeah, like exactly. Like eventually, like like I spoke about last time, finally hit his sword. Like you're supposed to be laying low, out of sight, <laughs> out of mind, <laughs> running around with a heron mark blade. Then you're putting wrapping red around it, sticking out even more, hanging out with the queen. Yeah. Um, stay low, you idiots. Yeah. Like, no wonder. Scaling the palace walls in broad daylight. This is why they catch. Nice to die. <laughs> yeah. Staring down an ice eye, just like getting himself into all situations when he's meant to be just laying low. Yeah. I suppose it would be a very boring book if he just laid low for 50 chapters. <laughs> yeah. But um, that was the other one, Joe, where I had two moments. The other one is when Rand meets Loyal and he's able to tell the full story without holding back on anything. That sense of relief that Rand feels and that I feel as a reader for Rand being able to do that. That was my number two. Uh, just loyal as well in the future i know they don't like to fight but when they do they are ferocious fighters and doesn't mm, loyal have mm. axe as well later on but on a, a shaft giant of, axe yeah, yeah like he sings axe. the axe handle from a tree mm. oh. i remember and then that. when the sean chan arrive they have full-on ogier guards yeah they've got ogier soldiers <laughs> the sean chan there's a whole other <laughs> wow man those guys but yeah we'll get into that i suppose <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of yeah we'll get into that <laughs> like I wanted there's to a lot of that to get into <laughs> yes. so on that note things that we're going to get into includes chapters 42 and 47 or up to 47 at least so 42 is the remembrance of dreams through to the end of chapter 47 more tales of the wheel and those are the ones we'll cover in next almost said next week's episode but in our next episode yeah and then after that i think there's only one more i think after mm-hmm. that, there's two more yeah podcast is i think we're done with book one two two more episodes for this book yeah 12 Sw- chapters that's it's yes flying by and i've enjoyed every minute of it i know i know i thought it would be um i sort of um f- or at least i thought it would feel like it takes a long time because we have these sort of set milestones during the reading of the book where we have to, we don't have to stop, but where we have to actually stop and discuss. And, you know, it's very regimented. Um, but it, if anything, it's just given the motivation to just charge ahead because the, the rate at which we're going, I mean, it's not blinding. Um, COVID-19 has meant that I am not commuting to work anymore. So, you know, as a, as a middle-aged dad, it is sometimes hard to find the time <laughs> to dedicate to reading and taking yes. notes and stuff. But um, the pace at which we've been going has been very enjoyable and very manageable. Well, I forced myself to slow down and now I'm regretting it because now I've got the books <laughs> just staring at me there and I'm like, oh, right, it's 11, 13 p.m. What am I going to do now? <laughs> Read. Read. That's all you got to do. I like how we've also you know, taken the term middle-aged dad and made it a source of pride. Uh, <laughs> yeah, middle-aged. Was it ever not? Loving it. Middle-aged dad. I use it I use it in uh, comment sections on Facebook as well. All the yeah, groups good. that I'm in, people say, oh, I'm rereading us. Oh, you got to listen to our podcast, middle-aged dads. That's like the, the <laughs> advertising point that I use the most. 
<laughs> well, it's it's relevant and true. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so on that pleasant note, I think it's time for us to bid each other a, a fond farewell until next time. So um, until next time, gentlemen, I will see you on the internet. Yes, we'll be there. We'll be there. All right. You too. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, man. Bye.